Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bolt. And it's the most wonderfully chaotic time of the year as we undertake the monumental task of compartmentalizing the entire year of 2023 into a mere 10 picks of our favorite games of the year. For part one of our games of the year coverage, we'll be looking at our personal picks, number 10 through number six, as well as several favorite of categories and even some input from a few of our guests we've had on the show this year. And as is customary, if one of us mentions a game on the other's list before they have a chance to talk about it, we'll hold off on that discussion until we arrive at that game's placement on the other's list. So before we get our top 10 discussion of the year kicked off, uh, Neil, how would you kind of summarize this year in games? Plentiful, I think is uh, the best way <laughs> yeah. to put it. I mean, <laughs> the, I mean, we'll get the, the major caveat out the way in turn that needs to be said about this year is that it is a fantastic year for video games, not even just for horror, but like in general. But yeah. it comes at the cost of you know, terrible working conditions and terrible you know, work attitudes in terms of like firing people left, right and centre. Um, not just in the games industry in terms of making games, but in talking about games and every department. And for a, a business that is, you know, dwarf cinema, it's ridiculous. And, you know, the, the action that's happened for cinema this year with the strikes, I hope we uh, get similar for everyone next year as well in the games department because you can't carry on like that. Unsustainable. And we will not end up having another year like this if that happens. But, yeah. but yes, on a happy note, fantastic year. And horror has been just so wonderfully wide and varied. And I think that's just superb to be honest to have uh, such a fantastic year or from you know, right down to the short indies all the way up to the high box office remakes and things you know so it has been one of those all-timers i think yeah no i completely champion what you're saying and you know as recently as today uh even though it's not nearly enough uh 77 contracted microsoft qa testers will be converted to full-time employees who are then eligible to, you know, join the Zenimax Workers United Union, which yeah. is a small step in the right direction, right? Because, you know, when you're talking about all of these wonderful creatives and people that are working behind the scenes to make these games that we're all enjoying and everything, um, it's nice to see even people that perhaps would be the most overlooked, you know, which would be QA yeah. testers and these things, uh, which, you know, if you ever read a job posting on any of these um, companies' sites for even something like a QA tester, you know, it's obviously a lot more than just like running into walls and seeing if you clip through things, right? <laughs> uh, there's a lot more that goes into that. And to see, you know, this group that maybe is uh, often overlooked or viewed as not as important, perhaps by some, as, you know, being vital to kind of the creation of, again, these games that are uh, not only something that we're all enjoying and dumping a 
generous amount of our free time into, but at the same time, seeing people at the tops of these companies reaping the benefits of monumental sales and whatnot. Um, it's just, you know, a step in the right direction, but I think, you know, it, there's a lot more work that has to be done, but that's a great way to kind of, I suppose, start off our celebration of the year by acknowledging the fact that, you know, we still have a lot of work that needs to be done and getting certain people recognized, making sure that these games are not being made at the expense of, you know, people's mental health, time yeah. with their families. And at the same time, you know, making sure people are adequately um, compensated, especially when, you know, you have these games that have crazy profits, crazy sales figures, they get, they become critical darlings. And then you see in the next couple of weeks or a month, there's like, oh, we're going to slash a percentage of our workforce and just, you know, thanks yeah. for what you did. People at the top are going to enjoy the benefits of that success, but we're going to cut you loose. And, you know, hopefully this momentum will continue into the new year and, you know, hopefully further um, in just sort of the, I suppose, history of games and whatnot. Um, but and moving on from that, um, I would love for you to kick us off with your number 10 pick of the year. Yeah. Now, you know, as we've just been saying, there are so many good games this year. I mean, I looked at my shortlisting from last year, which was already pretty sizable, you know, like that yeah. and all the things I couldn't get put on there. And Christ, this year is worse. You know, like mm. that. And considering like partway through the year, I kind of slowed up massively. I think that early part of the year really set me in, in good stead. So it has been very difficult to pick 10 games. And then the best way I found to do it was to sort of look at certain games and go, okay, maybe we won't qualify you for Wickbook, but and for this reason or that reason. And I'll get into that when we talk about in the second episode, when we get to the honorable mentions, just before we get to the number one, because we don't want to spoil anything yet. Come on. <laughs> the whole point of this is that you want to listen to what we say and go, what? that game sort of thing and uh, (laughs) go with that yeah i i wanted to have you know a good variety of things um and uh, really sort of represent all the different kinds of cool things we've had this year so with number number 10 i had to pick something from vr because you know i really got back into vr this year thanks to psvr2 and again in the horror genre alone there were several really great examples but the one i'm picking is The Walking Dead Saints and Sinners 2, Chapter 2, Retribution, by uh, Skydance. Now, you know, I'd barely played the original when it was on PSVR, and it was just a bit much and for that technology to really make good use of. Um, here, it takes you back to New Orleans, the setting of the first game. And yeah, it is basically like playing a very immersive sort of zombie survival game, which has a narrative as well, you know, very much in keeping with the Walking Dead choice-based system and things like that. And it, the malleability of everything you can do, just the flexibility of your tactics in terms of picking stuff up and chucking it and like that, you know, you can use lots of things, a weapon to brain a zombie like that, pick up an ashtray, smack it over the head of a zombie. You can do that. Um, you have a knife, which you can do, you know, the old derelicts and just like, you know, close up sort of thing. And it feels really intense in the moment. And, you know, it has its own nemesis as well. Effectively in this game, this uh, unstoppable thing called the Axeman that, you know, will turn up and just like pursue you, you know, slowly, but still craft you. And Jesus Christ, it is so <laughs> dread inducing. You know, um, there are, isn't anything, you know, even in the Resident Evil games I've played in VR, that really has that kind of moment in those. 
even with those sort of chase sequences that they have. But this, yeah, when that guy shows up, you don't want to know. And yeah, it's a good verticality in the sense you can go up, down, round, and these maps that you go to are fairly self-contained but quite detail-heavy. So you can travel from this point to that point, and it's like different separate maps rather than an open world. And yeah, it, I knew that the original game was like a good example of PSVR as it was being this, you know, showing the power of what it could do, even with the limited amount it could do. But, you know, this is like turned up to 11 for it. You know, this it was exact kind of game I wanted, you know, in terms of horror. And, you know, a proper zombie apocalypse thing with slow zombies and not much flavor beyond that. I mean, there's, you know, human enemies and things. Um, I think, like, my only complaint is the sizes can be off in some respects in terms of the characters and uh, buildings. But I think that's also just New Orleans sort of architecture tends to be quite uh, large in <laughs> lots of places, which I didn't. I, I had to check afterwards because looking at it again, it feels like it's a bit bigger than it should be. But no, it's just the way it is. Um, yeah, and you'd think it would be really simple, a game, considering what it is and, you know, being VR and testing. But it was one of those early great examples on PSVR 2 for me that showed that you can have a game that's as the same as any other game of its type in VR with those extra dimensions added in. And it just improves it massively. And it's so hard to state exactly how much that does that, you know, without playing it. That's, that's the, the big problem of VR, isn't it? You, you know, unless you play it, you cannot really experience exactly what it is about it that makes it work. And, you know, it has, VR has just come a long way. There's no, there's no denying that. And, um, yeah, this was a fantastic experience for me. At the same time, you know, you've, I think, highlighted a feature of this game that even for somebody like myself that hasn't really invested in VR or doesn't necessarily seek out VR experiences, the notion of being chased by this unkillable threat in first-person VR, like that, if I had VR, that would sell me on a game that otherwise I probably wouldn't be that interested in because, you know, just perhaps... My uh, hesitation to buy anything Walking Dead these days because of the kind of oversaturation of that brand, right? And I think even the most recent, um, I don't even know what it's called, but the most recent Walking Dead game <laughs> uh, that came out yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, has not received the most favorable reviews of the year. No. Uh, and even just watching footage of that, it's kind of like, yeah, I see why this is, uh, you know, getting the, uh, the negative hype around it perhaps that it's getting. But to hear that, you know, a Walking Dead game is able to utilize... VR technology, and then deliver a kind of like the primal horror experience that horror fans would want, that sounds appealing to me in a way that perhaps the Evil Dead games haven't been, right? Because I mm. loved the Telltale games, but that was more about, you know, the decision making, the characters, and being coming invested in these people that, you know, might not make it out at the end. It was yeah. never really for me like about, oh, well, this is going to be a terrifying zombie experience because, again, I'm kind of like oversaturated with uh, Walking Dead stuff at this point. But, yeah. you know, that really does sell me on something that previously it sounds like a majority of uh, horror VR games haven't leaned into fully. Granted, you know, we just got Resident Evil 4 VR, so who knows how that's going to shape out as a full package or whatnot. But like if I can't get chased by Nemesis in <laughs> VR, this sounds like that could be kind of the the uh, the next best thing, if you will. Yeah, and you know, as a caveat, um, I played barely any of uh, 
RISD 4 VR before we started this and uh, I had technical problems that I was telling you about mm-hmm. and uh, I don't count Village because you know the game itself came out last year but I will say Village VR was also just amazing you know the, the differences it made to that game were just ridiculous and uh, again the flexibility you have in that game compared to you know, the regular game where you could just carry a knife and a gun at the same time and just <laughs> yeah. you know fucking John Wick your way for anything um <laughs> <laughs> slowly of course but, <laughs> but yeah it is just such a great uh, medium for horror games and it's a shame that it is rather you know exclusive club at this point you know so hopefully year two for PSVR two they'll uh, get something a bit more on the ground in terms of getting people involved and uh, making it a bit cheaper but um, yeah. with that said, what is your number 10? My number 10 is going to be Dredge from Black Salt Games. And I'm going to say it's on my list <laughs> later. All right. Well, then <laughs> I'm going to... No worries. This happens all the time, right? I think it's something that we uh, we both expect will happen at certain points. Again, we it also doesn't help that we have very similar taste in games yeah. but at the same time uh it's always fun to see kind of like where the placement lands which if anything you know speaking to sort of the uh the the manic madness of trying to like organize a top 10 list all i did this week was go from like 20 games that i had on a list to then my top 10 which didn't take as long as it did last year but then it was like swapping things around just as recently as like yesterday the placement which killed me but well, if we're not going to chat about my number 10 pick, then we're going to get right into our first award, which is, again, our way of kind of implementing perhaps some of our honorable mentions for the year, but fulfilling them within you know a very specific category, which our first award is going to be for original IP. And for mine, it's going to be My Friendly Neighborhood by John and Evan Siminski. And I do have to make the caveat once again, much like I did when we covered this game earlier in the year. Um, I am currently a writer for Dread XP, uh, so I suppose some people will take what I have to say about this game with a massive grain of salt, but it's a game that I think, for me, I had forgotten, literally, and I think I said this in our coverage, I forgot it was coming out, and then it was like the week of, and I remembered, and I was like, oh shit, yeah, it's this weird puppet horror game, let's see what this is about. Um, And I was really, really impressed with this game, not only, I suppose, from a branding perspective, but even like branding in the game itself, right? It so clearly is playing off of that sort of spoof of, you know, Sesame Street, right? But it doesn't lean into that in the way that I was expecting. I was expecting something much more along the lines of like the Five Nights at Freddy's route, which is not a knock against those games. But at the same time, I assumed, oh, this is going to be a game about puppets with big fangs and blood covering their faces and whatnot, and they're ripping people apart. And the game very much is designed against that um, sort of, I suppose, approach. And it's better off for it, I think, because it allows the world itself to shine just as much as the weird, creepy puppets are. And that's not to say that they're not creepy, uh, but they are, I suppose, creepy in a way that doesn't feel overbearing to the degree mm. that, and, you know, that kind of leans into, like, my uh, my issue with the Outlast series, right? It's like, let's put as much blood and gore and body parts in every single scene to get across the fact that this is a game set in a horror world. And this game, My Friendly Neighborhood, takes that setting, it explores it in a way that feels 
I suppose as grounded as that setting could for a game that's about, you know, demonic puppets to a certain extent <laughs> uh, or sad puppets that want to kill you. Um, because of the fact that, you know, the puzzles are reflective of the world before the creepy puppets actually showed up. Right. So that was something that was a detail that I thought was very tried and true to like survival horror, which obviously the game is abiding by a lot of those conventions. Um, and it does something that I would again say is like championing the survival horror framework of something like Resident Evil, where the puzzles were not revolved around the dead. They were revolved around this this weirdo architecture with this setting. They felt very integral to the setting in a way before the dead even showed up. And I would say the same is true of My Friendly Neighborhood. Now, in terms of like the combat and whatnot, I thought that was all great because again, it's playing to this very specific um, sort of spoof on what you would expect. You're not using Glocks and Remington shotguns, right? You're quite literally using a Rolodex for a handgun. You're using a um, basically like typewriter parts for the shotgun and whatnot. And just all of these little details that feel reflective of the world and then yeah. the horror aspect is just like a byproduct of that. Um, I loved mm-hmm. that approach. I thought that that made this game stand out more than, again, just being, you know, another survival horror homage. If anything, it elevated that the game that much more. Um, and I also just saw a lot of potential for the future, whether that be expanding on the studios that are on the set, which could be new areas, new puppets, new sort of just expanding on the lore, which, again, this is one of those games that, you can see the fandom being built around it because of the fact that you have these weird characters and the lore that goes into that. What were they like before they, you know, turned into what they are? What could they potentially evolve into further? And yeah, this was one of those games that uh, it came out of nowhere for me after I forgot about it, admittedly. And then it, it was like my obsession for the week that I was playing it before it was released. Yeah, it's understandable. It is just one of those games that is, again, you really have to experience to get what it is about and it, you know we went on about this before about you know certain demos for games don't always translate well to the experience and i think yeah. the demo for that game was one of those where it, it really didn't sell me on what it was it wasn't until i played it that it was like oh so yeah it's more like that it's more resident evil than it is five nights and freddy's and it's yeah so much better for it and it, given the people involved it's understandable that it's got this goofy throwback you know, 90s idea sure. of shooter, shooters where it's like let's do something like this game but do these wacky weapons <laughs> and all this weird stuff i love that a game of wacky weapons is always good in my book so yeah yeah that, that's a a good shout i'd say for that one um for me i would uh you know i could pick dredge but you know i won't as it's you know on the main list um so what I will go with is Team 17 Digital's Killer Frequency, uh, which is a first-person horror puzzle game set in 1987, where you are a late-night radio talk show host in a small American town. And all your callers are being stalked by what is seemingly a returning notorious killer. Uh, and you have to use the environment of this uh, radio station to find the things to help you to help them you know you don't die you don't fail if, if they die and you you don't get through them. you know the, the story continues um the idea is to try and save as many people through things you find in the environment and uh, talking them through certain sections and you know we were talking on um the discord recently about um pontypool 
Yeah, like that. And uh, mm. the first thing yep. that reminds me of is that, you know, because it has this arc to it where you are just doing the talking and describing things happening a lot of the time, uh, which I really like that, you know, considering how detail-rich the environment is um, for it. It really does a great job at, at showing that off. Um, and I think I think the quote um, I saw from Games Radar, which, you know, it feels gloriously like an interactive horror podcast, maybe mm. suddenly go, oh, yeah, now I know why we like it. That's fine. That's, uh, <laughs> that. <laughs> but, you know, it is that too. I think, yeah, it is true. It's um, kind of like an audio drama that, you know, many of which we have on, on this uh, very bloody FM network that you may want to check out. And, yeah, it's a great use of that medium. You know, I think um, it's an untapped place uh, to sort of draw from, which is why, you know, Pontypool has always been so special, I think, as, as a horror movie, is because it takes something like that environment and makes it descriptive and but still show you, shows you enough to... Um, give you something to see with it as well. Um, yeah, and you know, it's funny occasionally too, which is lighthearted. And you know, it's one of those rare games where you know, it's set in the 80s, the aesthetic is very 80s, you, know, you, you can put different tracks on and it's all very 80s and that style as well. But it feels earned, you know, because the atmosphere and the feel of what it's doing feels like something out of the 80s in terms of like movies and stuff like that. But... Yeah, so I, I, that is a tough thing to achieve, I think, in, in modern-day things. Um, it's a clear sort of vision. I like the idea of a slasher game in this context. It's really smart that it actually ended up working out this way. And I could see it working again. And, you know, So I, I could see this being made into a... You know, getting a sequel made into something similar, um, different place, different story sort of thing, uh, a different year even, and a different technology at hand would just be amazing. Yeah. It's so tactile. It's like um, a very small space immersive sim in that regard, that you are having this flexibility to do things in the way you want to do them, deal with tasks as they come up, don't, and you know, in the meantime, fiddle around with stuff you find and stuff like that. And even just as a little DJ simulator, it's quite fun you know, for a bit as well. So yeah, and you can approach it like that. You, you can do it as simple or as complex as you like. And I think, I think it's... um. A really good sort of platform to grow into something even bigger yeah and i think for what it is it's like a really impressive game no i think that uh this is one that i definitely regret not making time for this year because you kind of have just described it as being uh, a merger of two of my loves which is like slashers but then also single location horror and kind of blending those two together and then having not only the agency of being you know boots on the ground in this studio, yeah. but also the tactile nature of it, but also the fact that that's contrasted against a majority of the scares of the, you know, the tension of the game being descriptive. And there is something, and we've seen this in a couple of um, horror bites this year, which I've now, of course, I'm blanking on the titles of them, but games that have put you in to the shoes of somebody else, but a majority of the fear comes from the fact that you're being given these secondhand reports of what's happening, which that's why Pontypool obviously is such a great shout in terms of referencing this and giving this uh, sort of context to other things that maybe evoke something similar. And that the complete aspect of that movie I love is the fact that you don't see a majority of what is actually terrorizing yeah. people. It's just hearing these secondhand accounts, which 
you know, as most secondhand accounts are, they can be fragmented, they can be broken, they can be inaccurate, but that's all you have to go on. So you start basically creating your own story in your head of what's going on. And the fact that that is the basis of this game, essentially, and getting sort of the secondhand feedback. And then again, the tactile nature of just exploring that studio, which becomes your home. Um, yeah, that sounds like something that I'm definitely going to have to make time for over the holiday. Yeah. I mean, and that, and it's real time as well. So everything you're doing mm. is in real time. So like I said, you, making sure you get to stuff in time is imperative. And I love that about it. Um, you know, the fact that you can just like say, I think one of the best examples is like, you know, having to find a way to hotwire a car in this magazine uh, to tell someone how to hotwire a car so they can get out of wherever they are. And it's like just the tent, you feel the tension. You know, like that, you know, even though you aren't seeing the situation play out, you know, it's the, the caller's voice and how terrified they are and, the, you know, the way you're sort of trying to do the two things at once and trying to keep things. I think and that's the fun bit, I think, is like trying to juggle being a DJ and doing this like that at the same time. It's just, yeah, it, it's a really cool concept. And, uh, yeah, and there's me now in my head going, why didn't you put it on your top 10 then? So, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, I have a feeling that that's going to be kind of like the sentiment where we're kicking ourselves after we mention yeah. everything for these awards. Cause it's just like, how did that not make the list? And then it's like, you look back at your list and you're like, Oh yeah, that's why, because of this <laughs> and this and this and this. And then you realize it could be a fucking five hour podcast. It's still good. <laughs> uh, so we're going on to your number nine next, I believe, aren't we? Yep. So my number nine is going to be aliens, dark descent. Not on my list. So, not yeah. on your list. Okay, no. perfect. So, this was a game from Tindalos Interactive that we chatted about earlier this year. And in revisiting the game this week and just you know getting to think about it for all these months, it is quite possibly, I think, the best use of the Aliens IP in a good mm. long while. Um, you know, often with the Alien or Aliens IP, the inclination from most developers, which, you know, is perfectly viable, is you go first person, you go third person, right? We've seen both sides of that kind of Aliens adaptation coin. Uh, yeah. Given the mostly action-oriented nature, or in the case of something like Isolation, the strategy nature. And RTS always seemed like a natural fit, right, for this franchise, just because of the military aspect. Or even if, you know, you wanted to let people kind of have the StarCraft effect where you play both yeah. sides, whether it's Xenos, whether it's the uh, Colonial Marines. But I always assumed that that RTS aspect would be kind of doled out in a fashion not too dissimilar from something like StarCraft, which I would get on board with that because I love StarCraft. But at the same time, that's not that original. It's like a different kind of like skins for the enemies and the buildings and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, how do you replicate or rather, how do you utilize the aliens IP in a way that is distinctively different that actually like understands what made the core film scary even something like aliens which you know i'm not going to say that i find that film to be more terrifying than alien but at the same time there is a terrifying aspect of that film that that movie captures in a way that so few alien movies that are as action-oriented i think actually do um, and so to see tindalos interactive take that concept and really present what i find to be the most singularly distinctive rts experience that i played this year um, was just like a treat from start to finish. And yeah. granted, I haven't finished it yet, but I've spent a good amount of time uh, with that game over the course of the year. And, you know, I think that the biggest aspect of this that actually utilizes the IP in a meaningful way is basically like the fear aspect, right? Yeah. Everything that you do with your squad 
And, you know, every interaction, no matter how close it is with the xenomorphs, you have to be cognizant of the fact that, like, your guys are being stressed out. Your guys are being inundated with fear because of, you know, the terrifying predicament of dealing with an alien species from another world uh, and getting into constant firefights with not only them, but also with enemy AI or, I suppose, you know, Weyland-Yutani soldiers and whatnot getting into firefights. Um, But it's more than that, I think. And, you know, there is that aspect also that, kind of draws a little bit of the XCOM influence, which we talked about was there's this sort of um, meta game to it where, you know, you have to constantly be researching, upgrading your guys in between missions and whatnot, um, which is great because that ends, it adds another facet to the experience and makes it a little bit deeper than it just being, you know, Starcraft 2.5 or whatever. Yeah. um, Which again was kind of my fear. Um, But, you know, capturing that intensity at so many different intervals throughout maybe the 20 hours I've spent with the game is something that I was never anticipating because when you have those moments that play out in somewhat, you know, traditional fashion of I've found the objective, now I have to defend the objective. Again, it utilizes the IP so incredibly well. It utilizes it mostly through exploring the alien's bestiary in probably the most meaningful way since Fireteam, right? Fireteam from the other year, I think, was the most recent example before this that actually was like, hey, let's look at the source material that's been available since the 90s or even earlier than that, right? With comic books, with sort of fiction and whatnot in this universe. And to see this game that has a more strategic purpose and, you know, design behind it actually continue that trend as a longtime Aliens fan of the Dark Horse comics, I couldn't ask for anything more. Um, and it made the game exciting in a way that I don't always associate with a good deal of aliens media, um, just because, you know, typically it's like, OK, facehuggers, xenomorphs, you've got a queen. Typically, that's the end of that sort of exploring the bestiary and to see all of these other creatures that explore not only new combat facets, but also it's just like, hey, this is a fucked up race of aliens from another planet. Like, let's see how weird we can get with it. And really sort of exploiting that in a meaningful way um, really allowed Aliens Dark Descent for me to be a standout, not only a strategy game of the year, but one of my favorite experiences that I'm still not done with, that I still want to go back to. And I've, like I said, 20 hours in, I want to spend another at least 10 or 15. Yeah. I mean, it's something else uh, that they managed to pull it off. Um, As you say, it feels like a natural fit. Always has um, to kind of, Slow down the pace a bit, you know. Um, with Alien and Alien Isolation in itself, you know, the idea is yeah, keep it slow, keep it simple. You can do that with one alien um, in a real time environment, no problem. But you can't really do that with aliens in the way that you need to, being cool and strategic in the way that you need to be. I think putting it in a first person style shooter just makes it, or even a third person shooter kind of means you can't have the downtime without having the detail. And I think the best way to break that down is having, you know, this this sort of um, strategy element that really plays out and having to, you know, getting the action taken away from you to some degree and allowing you to sort of focus on, like, the how you utilise that action properly in any given situation. Um yeah, I think that's the perfect use of the Marines. You, know, you are you know, the guy in the truck you know, conveying the, the orders effectively all throughout, uh, which yeah, is the great appeal of XCOM as well. Uh, yeah, so it, 
it always looked intriguing and it's kind of a shame it's sort of flown under the radar a bit i think in a lot of places you know again just testament to the kind of year we've had where you can look at this and go we had a really good aliens game this year and people probably won't talk about it (laughs) but again i think we sort of discussed this um off there you know there are certain genres where people will may like the ip but they'll see the type of game it is and go nah I think I said this to you last year with um, Marvel's Midnight Suns, where Firaxis, you know, made this really cool turn-based card game thing with very great horror leanings. That was a Marvel-based, had great storytelling, had great friendship ideas of getting to know characters, and yeah, because of the kind of game it was and what it looked like, they were like, oh, no, people just let it flop, which is nuts. And yet, if you give them something simple with uh, a big glossy graphics and you know upfront storytelling like Spider-Man Two, fine, people will eat it up. And that, there's you know knock no knock on Spider-Man Two, fun game, but it's a shame when you get someone understanding how to utilize an IP properly and in an inventive way, and it doesn't get um, the respect it deserves. Um, you know we've just seen recently you know Arcane and Leon are doing. A blade game in you know, in a third person game like that, but still an arcane Leon game. It's like that sounds amazing, but then you think of the kind of game it will be and how people whine about that kind of game. It's like, you know, I don't want to be them going up against like you know, Insomniac's Wolverine game, you know, or something that would just be unfair at this point, which is oh, jeez, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, the people that love arcane games are probably going to go. They're doing another vampire game, but this time mm-hmm. it'll be good. <laughs> from the outset, I would say good from the outset. Paul Redfall has got better. <laughs> My last comment on Dark Descent is that if anybody is a fan of the film, which you know I assume everybody that plays an Aliens game is, um, this game single-handedly gave me one of the best moments I've had all year in games, which is having the APC, the armored you know personnel carrier, from the film being a central point of the experience and how it can help you, you know, shuffle troops around a map at the same time though, it is automated. So there's a section where, you know, I'm trying to XVAC a wounded, two wounded guys. I've only got, you know, the remainder of my squad that are low on ammo. And as they run towards the APC drop uh, pickup point, the APC rolls up and basically chews through the five xenomorphs that were chasing me. And that was one of, again, such a fantastic use of the IP but also giving something that if they had done it in any other of the sort of viewpoints of games, it would not have been as effective, but having sort of this APC roll up out of the fog of war to save my ass at the last moment, and then saving these soldiers that I'd basically been investing all these points and everything into to live to fight another day, even if it's kind of by the skin of their teeth. That's one of those moments that, you know, we talk about XCOM a lot. It's the most XCOM moment I've had in a year where there was no new XCOM game. Or I didn't play, go back and play XCOM 2 or something like that. Um, so if that doesn't sell you on the idea of a strategy Aliens game, I really don't know what will. Um, but I'm hoping that whatever your number nine pick is will uh, sell people on it who haven't played it. Yeah, my number nine pick is Varney Lake by a LCB Game Studio. And uh, published by Chorus Worldwide. Uh, this is a second of the Pixpop games. We mentioned the previous game and we've talked about this one actually as well on, on the show. Um, 
uh, Mothman uh, 1966 was the first thing. These games basically replicate the vibe of uh, early computer games, very limited color palette, high detail using pixels uh, in that way, um, but telling stories that are like pulp novels, you know, effectively. Um, in Mothman, uh, Mothman 1966, it was you know, that kind of 50s B-movie sort of idea of like America. And this one goes to the 50s and gives you a very Stephen King-esque story of like three kids discovering a vampire uh, in their summer break. And the consequences of that um, as they go on in later life and you sort of jump between the two, back and forth, you know, between the youth, when they're older, with little mysteries in between of like, where's that person gone? What happened to that person? That sort of thing. And yeah, it is like a Stephen King story in the sense that it's, you know, innocence versus, you know, darkness, you know, effectively, um, told in a way that makes you wonder what the outcome's going to be. You know, how is it going to play out? Yeah, the innocence is there, but there's a thing in the background that's like, hmm, if that goes wrong, this could be very terrible for these children sort of thing. <laughs> and you know, it connects to Mothman as well. So you know, it has that. The third game, uh, Banshee Knights, is actually out a week after we record this. So unfortunately, we couldn't sort of uh, have that sort of discussion with this. Maybe in the new year. But yeah, I, I, you know, I really love the surprise of uh, Mothman last year and Viney Lake is inarguably to me even better you know um, I said when I reviewed it um, earlier in the year you know the strengths of this game come from having an author and an artist leading the overall vision of this project um, in a small team because you know the end result is something that draws from familiar sources but wouldn't have the same impact if they were made in any other medium you know, it's like it's a basic adventure thing it has little mini games and stuff like that in it as you tell the story but it, you know it doesn't play itself you know you have to do certain things to keep the story going but it it does really replicate this feeling of those kind of books and yeah you you can feel the people involved uh talents uh, at play absolutely when you see this and yeah i i've yeah, it had to be in here. You know, like it, it probably narrowly missed the cut when we did the halfway uh, games when we only had five picks, and it was like, I want it in there somewhere, sort of thing. <laughs> and you know, it is just fantastic in so many ways. I just love the minimalism of it and how much they do with that. You know, the visuals um, are just so impressive for you know what is basically blue, green, white. That's it, you know, in black. That's it. That's your color palette, and they do so well with it a lot of the time. Uh, yeah, so yeah, it's worth checking out. You know, I think because if you love that kind of adventure thing, I think we've talked about on horror bites a lot. Yeah, I've really sort of got into the idea of these very story-led sort of almost graphic novel style games. You know, that we get a visual novel style things. And yeah, this this has a large aspect of it, but it really does just throw back to that uh, time where I started getting into gaming, you know, on a ZX Spectrum, and you had these very similar color palettes. Um, but obviously, again, doing that smart thing of being a very modern version of it, and yeah, so it, it's that simplicity, that nostalgia, with something new. Um, 
they are a bit obsessed with doing a card game in each game, but yeah, I, I, I like that as a sort of continuity thing. So that, that's fun. I, I like that. It, you could probably look at it cynically and go, hmm, feels a bit like maybe they're trying to think of a way to fill the time. But you know, even in this, they, they, they come up with this whole horseshit thing that the kids are doing in terms of making up their own rules, their own card game thing like that. I love that because it adds to it nicely. And, you know, and the vampire involved in this, you know, just mesmerizing in that way that a vampire should be like that just reminded me again of so many things i'd read and watched in my youth where i was like yeah i can see how this works out and yeah it is um a wonderfully told story i love that you mentioned the card game aspect to this because i think that while it might be an in-universe gag about the fact that that is in you know both of the chapters and i'm sure it'll show up in the the next game that's released later this month that I think is a example of their commitment to establishing these worlds and these stories and these characters and actually giving you examples of what the characters themselves would be doing yeah. in their off time when they're not investigating this supernatural aspect to which to, you know, whatever the theme is for a given uh, entry in this series, because, you know, I probably spent 30 minutes playing just that card game <laughs> on top of the, you know, entire narrative aspect of this game. And, you know, at the end of the day, does it have a great deal of impact on the overall story? No, but that's not the purpose of it, I think. I think it further is an example of just like getting you into this world and understanding who these characters are outside of the sort of sp the spectacle aspect of this, right? Which is like, oh, they find a vampire. But to your point, I think details such as that really are what allow this game to channel King and his work and his style and his writing and attention to characters over the sort of, I suppose, the big horror aspect of a story because of how humanizing it makes those characters seem. It's not just being told why you should be investing in these people, but seeing perhaps yeah. a little bit behind the curtain of these characters and their motivations and why they do certain things. And, you know, as you mentioned, the, I suppose, amount of graphical depth that these games have with such a limited color palette, and I say graphical depth in the sense of like the overall art style and how they're able to make it stand out from other games that are trying to utilize this kind of like, I suppose, trend of pixelated, uh, you know, 16-bit color, however you want to call it, style that this game utilizes. And we've seen plenty of examples of games that have utilized that aspect or, or an art style, and it's kind of like a shrug. It's like, yeah, it's another thing that's trying to do what worked for another game. And with something like this, it is so central to the identity of these games and the creatives behind these games that with each iteration so far of what we've seen, you know, it's utilizing a similar style, but how much sort of emotion and I think just sort of visual flair is derived from just slightly changing the color palette. Like that has been something that speaks to, you know, you want to talk about branding, like each of these games is distinctly branded by the color palettes. Yes. And the fact that those color palettes are perfectly sort of in tuned to the overall vibe and sort of energy, I would say, of these games and what they're trying to do, like with Mothman, I believe it was very heavy with like greens and sort of um, either dark blues or something along that line, which sort of, uh, I think, helped evoke that setting of like this very woodland sort of rural setting. Whereas with, you know, Varney Lake, it is a lot more brighter of a color palette, which is evoking, you know, that summertime aspect. And then, you know, with their next upcoming game, it being vampire focused, 
Um, it's more, you know, dark. It's more Argento-esque, I would say. Yeah. Um, which again, you know, yeah. <laughs> which I think, again, it just, it helps to have games that are set within a similar universe, have a similar graphical style. At the same time, though, the color palette is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in sort of differentiating and not feeling like just another repeat of what they did last time. Um, so yeah, I'm definitely excited for what's in the future and, uh, didn't make my list, but again, it was one of those games that you brought to the table this year and it certainly left a mark. And if anything, it kind of pushed me to want to look into more of those sort of narrative based games, which we, you know, extensively covered with horror bites. Yeah. It is, um, again, just having something that takes a couple of hours and be like that is the perfect sort of middle ground between the two things. Um, I suppose we've got another sort of category to get it out of the way next, haven't we? We do, yeah. It's going to be favorite soundtrack. <laughs> Which might be the most difficult category we have this year. <laughs> I'm still looking at it and going, am I right, am I wrong? But it's um, which is nuts because I think the biggest thing is there's so many different examples and different types. You know, there's traditional scores, there's, you know, OST proper, you know, licensed tracks and tracks created for games in particular. And that, for me, that's what makes it so difficult to sort of pick one thing. There's stuff that has what I would call mood music that is barely like there in your brain. It's just there in the background. Um, you know, you only sort of notice it in the key moments, maybe. Um, but if I had to pick one in terms of like, Ambition, variety, style, Alan Wake 2, I think, without, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, it makes great use of like full songs and, you know, like having a whole soundtrack made especially um, for your game, like like an old sort of movie blockbuster soundtrack where you know, they get all these big stars into sing songs that are vaguely related to whatever you're talking about. But, you know, like... There are tracks that are fantastic, you know, and that came unfortunately onto streaming services a little too late to be in like Spotify wrapped this year or something like that. But and <laughs> fall into that horrible void between the end of wrapped and the beginning of a new year. But um, I think for <laughs> the old gods of Asgard stuff, you know, Poets of the Falls stuff is just marvelous anyway. But you know that iteration with the heavy metal stuff and uh, Herald of Darkness being the big deal that it is. It's great. But yeah, those chapter songs, I just love, you know, like the background music is very ambient stuff. And again, just it doesn't get in the way of anything. Um, yeah. I think as a, that, you know, as a soundtrack that is just all things, you know, at once, it's just a really great, audio undertaking uh, and i think for that alone it should yeah, be the clear winner i say clear winner like it didn't take me hours to think of this one category <laughs> <laughs> well you know one of my favorite aspects of the all awake 2 soundtrack is the fact that it so perfectly fits what is inarguably you know one of the weirdest narratives of the year and the fact that that as weird and as abstract as the narrative gets and as abstract and weird as the the music gets, it all has this roundabout way of just fitting so perfectly together that it doesn't feel like it is weird and obscure and random for the sake of it, right? I think I talked about that in our episode when we had Mark Delaney on. Um, the fact that 
it is so refreshing to see something that is so singularly creative and abstract. And yet, even if you don't necessarily understand in the moment, by the end of that experience, everything comes together to just kind of like lift up this thing in a way that is meaningful to not only the characters, but also the sort of emotional arc and the continuing of the narrative from the original game in a way that feels so much more straightforward than I was expecting, right? Because again, you know, we're going to talk about Alan Wake 2 again, believe me. Um, It is the type (laughs) of experience though that it just, it feels so well thought out for a sequel to a game that I never really thought I needed a sequel to. And, you know, to see the return of those end chapter songs, like you said, I mean, I would just put the controller down and kind of vibe out to those tracks every single time. Even if it was a repeat of something, I would just sit there and kind of just take it in. And it feels like the perfect way to typically decompress after a chapter that's either been combat heavy, whether it's had some kind of big narrative reveal or whether it was just scary as shit and I needed to catch my breath. And it always felt like the proper way to come down from what I just experienced. And then that could be a perfect time to kind of like take a break and step away. At the same time, it's equally effective in just kind of like letting me recalibrate a little bit and dive right back into sort of the madness, if you will, of uh, Alan Wake 2. I think it's deserved. Uh, how about you? What was your pick? For my pick for favorite soundtrack, it was going to be Oxenfree 2 Lost Signals cool. yeah, from uh, Night School Studio, and it's composed by uh, Scientific. And if you want to look him up, uh, it is SCNTFC. Um, I would say that, you know, for a game that is as nostalgia heavy in terms of thematics, in terms of sort of the vibes of Oxenfree, um, Scientific goes above and beyond, I think in delivering a soundtrack that is more than the typical sort of like 80s, 90s, early 2000s sort of like bleeps and bloops, if you will. You know, it is very much channeling an analog sort of take on the type of soundtrack that you would expect. But at the same time, it's still able to match the range of emotions that our characters are experiencing while still kind of, I think, acknowledging and championing sort of the I suppose, genre tropes of stuff like mystery, nostalgia, grief. And it's also, you know, a score that can match the more exciting, fantastical elements of Oxenfree 2's narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that was another high contender. You know, and uh, I think what we did the halfway of the year sort of thing, that was you know, one of the things I mentioned that the soundtrack is just perfectly done it again. Like, I mean, it, it, again, just something that doesn't intrude, but it's there. Yes. And it weaves itself into the story being told and the atmosphere of it all, and it just feels like this perfect whole like that. So, yeah, it is another, like I said, too many good examples this year. And that's uh, absolutely one of them. It was a soundtrack that very quickly was in my rotation of, like, my writing music, basically, where I'm like, oh, I've got to sit down and work on something for an hour. I'm not going to not throw on the Oxenfree 2 soundtrack. <laughs> um, but before we move on to uh, my number eight, um, I would love to know maybe a couple of your honorable mentions for favorite soundtrack, because, you know, between the two of us, Ooh. you're certainly, like, the soundtrack guy. Um, and, you know, <laughs> typically you were able to uh, kick a few worthwhile recommendations my way. Yeah, there, there were a few. I mean, I, I really liked what they did with Layers of Fear, uh, a remake, re- reimagining, I suppose you should call it. Um, that really had like a, an interesting sort of, re- again, that even the soundtrack was remade and redone and revitalized in a way that I quite liked. Um, I'll have to quickly check who does the soundtrack because I was, you know, a bit different with Alan Wake where you were <laughs> at that um trying to find out uh, it was a uh, uh, oh, i'm gonna butcher this name uh, sorry in advance but 
Arkadius Rykowski, I think is the name. Um, yeah, it does the soundtrack. And yeah, it is just really interesting sort of music, good mood music, um, really in keeping with what it um, is showing on screen. Um, it, what's the other one I'm trying to think of? It's really up there with that. I mean, I like Dead Spaces sort of reimagining again and you know, yeah. so Resi. Um, Switchback VR, which that also had some good stuff. Oh god, there's too many. This is the problem. <laughs> I'm looking for. I mean, Trapang too as well. Trapang, uh, yes. whatever it is, you know, it it has just you know, a bloody lovely soundtrack. You know, but it does, and very different again. In terms of the sound direction too, for that, like if you were to pinpoint a game that has the soundtrack kick in at just the right moment. Hmm. That would be one of them, right? I think we talked about, um, again, with Mark Delaney, we talked about Left 4 Dead having a, you know, the AI director, but then there's also like the sound director where the mu- has the music kick in just at the right moments. And yes. I would say something like Trepang too. I mean, when that game gets going, that is the most adrenaline pumping yes. first person shooter action oriented game that we've, that I've played since, you know, the original Fear. And if anything, the score of that game goes above and beyond. It feels like a more modernized version of um you know what they were doing with fear and it definitely feels influenced at times by something along the lines of like the doom reboots right something that is able to yes. kind of get this the shredding metal score in there at just the right moments but it doesn't feel overwhelming i suppose to the rest of the sort of emotional range of that game yeah um sort of honorable mention is it was new tunes in an old game but hunt showdown's latest um vocal tracks were just phenomenal again you know, that, that games just get awesome stuff constantly and uh yeah they get they are one of those that i just have in rotation it's they're all like variations on the same you know the theme that they have but like it really works well you know Mm. and i know it's not strictly horror game though i do believe it's very horror orientated in terms of its plot uh but bowls gate free you know just absolutely bloody phenomenal um soundtrack you know so I, i mean (laughs) <laughs> it is one of those games where you play it and go you, you want to shoehorn this into everything you know because it, it really does just compete on so many levels but yeah that, uh, that soundtrack is just absolutely fantastic oh, do I know any others I mean again I could cheat and say Quake 2 but yeah it's it's an old soundtrack but yeah it, it, again it, it it did a good job in sort of getting it back out there and uh, freshening up a bit I think audio wise um. Yeah, I think they're the main ones, really. I think the other ones have been very um, uh, other genre based. Um, yeah, I can't think of any of us off the top of my head. Let's say that. Well, it's and, okay. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure you've just recommended like as I know ambient <laughs> music and soundtracks to be. It's probably like forty hours of music, especially when I'm thinking about something like Baldur's <laughs> Gate Three. Um, but yeah, you know, like as always, there's no shortage of really great soundtracks, and again. You're somebody that has like pushed me to kind of think a little bit more about soundtracks when I'm going into things, right? I think that the best soundtracks, as we've kind of talked about, are always the ones that you don't really think about in the moment. It's usually after the fact, right, of how much they mm. kind of lifted up these certain uh, set pieces and whatnot, especially when you go back and listen to them independent from the media with which they're associated with. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I think when you know, you're know you looking at the year as a whole – 
uh, and we're kind of like championing things. There's definitely no shortage of really standout soundtracks. Yeah, and yeah, some of them do feature on a playlist we actually have on Spotify, yep. the Safe Room Horror Game Soundtrack Collection, which uh, where we can, any soundtrack that's available on there that, of games we covered is on that list. So you can have, I think... The last count I had was 102 hours worth of music. So I, I think you got, got a lot there. Right there. Yeah. So, <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly, all there. <laughs> so we, we are on to the back to the counting of games, I, I suppose, would be the next thing. Yeah, so my number eight pick, which is admittedly not a horror game, but it is too much of a standout from the year of what I've played to not mention it. And it's my list, so if you're upset about that, I don't care, uh, which, and that was more to general audiences, not just you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I will object heavily. <laughs> but uh, my number eight pick was going to be Robocop Rogue City from developer Taeon. Um, I would call it genre. I, there you go. You there got we go. away with it. <laughs> Perfect. You know, this was a game that I saw the demo when it was making the rounds on social media, and mm. I was like, okay, this looks fun as hell. This looks like they captured what it feels like to be the powerhouse that is RoboCop. I don't know how you stretch that into an experience that is more than six to eight hours and how you make this an experience that is more than just this sort of vertical slice of the demo, right? I don't know how you do that meaningfully to the degree that you make it an experience where there's a little bit more depth to it. Not to say yeah. that there's not merit in capturing that, that the sort of um, fundamentals of that demo and building that around just to sort of standard first person shooter but i was kind of like okay i still want a little bit more than that i think and i was completely floored by the fact that taeon is able to take that ip take those moments of just absolute 80s carnage from the demo and expand that into what is a meaningful 10 to 15 hour experience um, i think that most importantly it is a fantastic use of the ip that perfectly yeah. captures the tonal balance of the films it is darkly comedic you have Peter Weller returning to do all the lines of RoboCop, which, you know, I don't know if you have a game without him doing that, uh, to be honest, because there are plenty of dog shit RoboCop impressions out there. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, that darkly comedic sort of RoboCop energy, uh, it spans more than just cutscenes, right? Because the game opens up with a cutscene that kind of is giving the typical RoboCop branded news briefing of, hey, here's something that happened. And then here is this horrific punchline to what has happened, right? A submarine is misfired and all of a sudden everybody on the East Coast is dead type of thing, uh, which is always like bearing the lead of that tragedy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that expands to what is probably the most surprising aspect of this game that actually works really, really well, which is the RPG light mechanics of this game, which is in between the big mission set pieces, which, you know, I'll get to, which are primarily what that demo was, which was an expanding of this first person carnage kind of like powerhouse uh, aspect of RoboCop. But these RPG light mechanics are, a, you know, mid open world. Uh, they might even be small open world, but you're basically exploring a neighborhood and you're going to be completing these side objectives, whether that's in the precinct or if it's outside in the city streets. Yeah. And those missions really do channel that sort of darkly comedic energy of like in between going to a, drug house and killing all the drug dealers. Next, I come across a guy that's doing graffiti on a building and I can either, you know, arrest him or I can give him a warning. And then at the same time, I can like write parking tickets as RoboCop, which again, 
you know, it's hilarious to think that this billion dollar project that's supposed to be like the solution to crime is still being, you know, regulated to writing parking tickets and shit like that. Um, so like you get this great sense of humor, but when you actually get behind, you know, the visor and you get to use that auto cannon, it is so satisfyingly devastating in a way that you want a game such as this to be right. I think if you don't have a RoboCop game, first person shooter that doesn't sort of get that and have the fact that each weapon has to be devastating in the hands of this, you know, cyborg, you don't really have a game. And this game delivers that in spades uh, constantly. You know, you can use weapons other than the um, his you know signature weapon but they are still fun to use and they can still be devastating to use. That was something that again was kind of worrisome was that I was like, as fun as that auto cannon can be a first person shooter with one gun and two modes burst and full auto that might get a little tiresome, but in this, you know, the fact you have that variety that you don't have to rely on. And yet those weapons are a reflection of the world and they can be just as fun to use at times um, was something that I was really impressed with. And it gave again, more variety to combat, which I wasn't expecting. The fact that you're a cyborg and you can pick up stuff and throw it at enemies or pick up enemies themselves and throw them against, you know, walls or throw them into the ceiling and whatnot. And you get that slow-mo kind of uh, squishing of them getting, you know, their, all their bones broken. Never not satisfying. At the same time, there's a section where like you fight guys on motorcycles. You can literally grab a guy off a motorcycle or pick up his motorcycle and throw it at other people. Is <laughs> like... One of the most hilarious things I've done in games this year, but more importantly than this game just being like funny in combat from that sense, it is satisfying in a way that we've talked about previously where it's like you can't have a game that has combat and not have a certain level of punch to those weapons or those abilities because otherwise, what's the fucking point? I'm going to get burnt out on that within the first three hours. In this game, every single action you have has that satisfying punch that makes you feel like the tank you are but at the same time, you're not invulnerable, which, again, is the thing where it's like, how do you have this balance between this killing machine? But at the same time, that's not necessarily fun as from a gameplay, you know, the gaminess yeah. aspect. Um, did you actually get a chance to play this one or was this? One no, no, missed? I didn't. Yeah, it's um, unfortunately it was a bit lower on the priority list for me. But um, yeah, I mean, Robocop just seems like the most obvious thing for a video game just because of the tone of it. It is you know it's satire you know, in its very nature, so it it feels like the perfect thing to just like hyper violence and being weird and creative with it um, without stepping too far outside the boundaries of what you would expect. And you know what the developer did with the Terminator Resistance game as well is a great example of like you know that was them doing it's Terminator but it's a Far Cry game Terminator but janky and. Yeah, but it worked underneath it all, you know, and it really was like a very convincing Terminator game in terms of like the future stuff that we never get to see and do and really experience. And yeah, I I really like that about it, you know, for all the flaws the game had. And everything I've heard about the Robocop game is that you know, it is lessons learned and they've just got focus on the stuff that worked, the stuff that people really enjoyed about Resistance and... uh really lean into your IP a bit more. And like I said, this is a much better fit uh, for the kind of games they're making. Yeah, and more proof from the pudding, I think, why Judge Dredd would be a fucking phenomenal pick yes. you know, for, for them to do. Oh because, God. again, it fits, <laughs> it fits that tone 
so perfectly you know and um a lot of, a lot of the things you just thought described in terms of the um law enforcement side I, I love to see the extreme version of that with that as well but yeah i, I you know i it's a game i'll probably get around to at some point it's just you know it has you know the second half of this year has been a case of like picking choosing what i do and don't play and you do get that unfortunate regret feeling like you're missing out when you look at like end of year list and go didn't get to play that or didn't get around to that and you're like that but such is life such is time and maybe i shouldn't play another 20 hours of the games i play every week <laughs> but there you go that's <laughs> i have the comfort to do that so i will do that <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned uh, Taeon's last sort of uh, film IP endeavor with games because something like the Terminator game, as you said, you know, it utilizes the setting in a great way, but it didn't feel distinctly different from like a Far Cry, right? Which was kind mm -hmm. of the bummer of that game was that it felt more like a skinning of, you know, an experience that people have played plenty of times, which is not a tremendous knock against that game, but it kind of was just like reinvigorating something that after 10 hours, I was like, yeah, I've, I've played this before. Um, and I'll say that, you know, with the RoboCop IP, they have completely made a game that feels like it is channeling a unique experience through that IP in a way that we haven't necessarily gotten before. Uh, and even having the sensibility to basically replace headshots with nutshots at a certain point in this game <laughs> where you come across these heavily armored badasses that are basically heavily armored from the waist up and the only place that has very little armor is like <laughs> their groin region. Uh, and so, you know, tearing through groins with the uh, auto cannon from the films <laughs> is probably one of the most fun aspects of this game that I've had all year. And, um, you know, building upon the RPG light mechanics, there's, of course, XP and leveling up. And so you get to play around with a lot of really fun um, power ups, basically, that Robocop gets. You know, you've got yeah. basics like shield, blinding enemies, but then you also get stuff like which is, you know, obviously channeling the films, which is you get this aiming thing that you can basically aim on a part of the environment and shoot around corners or shoot around cover at enemies, um, which is never not crazy satisfying and, uh, you know, is a bloodbath in slow motion. So, yeah, couldn't recommend RoboCop Rogue City more. Um, a further example of just like there is so much more emphasis on utilizing film IPs for making games to yeah. the degree that, you know, I just hope we're getting more and more of these that actually are being developed by people that understand the source material and have a creative use for that to kind of actually deliver a video game adaptation of a film that, you know, we would always want. But that's enough chatting about uh, nut shots and whatnot. And I would love to hear what your number eight pick is. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you in a minute, but just to add to that, um, with Terminator Resistance, the assembly line DLC is like, by the sounds of it, like perfect mid-ground where it feels much more like Terminator focus in terms of like it's a suicide bomb oh. sort of mission thing like that is fantastic stuff for, for what that oh, game nice. is. So yeah, it, that feels very much like the bridging gap between what they did and what they're doing sort of thing. So I highly recommend that as an extra. But um, my number eight is going to be <laughs> is zombies again, um, unsurprisingly for me, and it is Dead Island 2 by Dan Buster Studios. Um, I had you already this. know that's not on my list. Yeah, yeah. I, miss I, me. It continually misses me. <laughs> I mean, this was in my five in the midway points. Um, and at the time, I, you know, I was looking thinking, it'll probably fade from view for me, maybe um, as the year goes on and more stuff comes out because you know, there'll be so much excellent stuff. And I wasn't wrong. There was a lot of excellent stuff. But what 
tipped it back in its favour is the first expansion it had, which is the house, you know, in the German sense of house sort of thing, um, expansion, which stops trying to be semi-open world and contains it to one building. It's really big and has all these different things. It's more like an arcane game in a lot of ways in terms of like having this single location, lots of cool stuff in it, and like this self-contained story of like the cult, a cult in the Hollywood elite sort of thing. And I love that. It's just, it, it gets the satire right and better than it did even in the, the original game. It does so much in a, in a single space. It looks fucking phenomenal you know, in that. And everything I loved about the Dead Island 2 game in general was just accentuated by that. And suddenly I was looking and going, oh, okay. So it's not just a redemption story in terms of what they did and got to come back and make this game. And this game that was dead, you know, and uh, the original developers kicked off it and everything like that and had to start again. That game was great, you know, in what it was. But now, you know, it is a great example of like something extra being added and it just being like, pushing it that little bit further you know what i was talking to you before about like wanting to play like the resident evil 4 vr to see how that would impact my feelings on that game like that and these things do matter i think um when you can have a game that has meaningful dlc and it really does do something different um you know big caveat i think is that you should play the game that comes before it in its entirety um, to get the most out of the story. You know, as, as much as story isn't like the major point in this game, it's still, you know, worthwhile before some of the revelations that come out of that. Um, but for Dead Island 2 in general, you know, taking it from the tropical island thing and then, you know, it's just LA that's been cut off by an earthquake, hence, you know, island in that sense. And, you know, so, it, yeah, an island in a, a very... Um, <laughs> loose sense of the word but uh it still counts and who cares in that sense because it's they're remembering everything that worked with dead island um and chucking out a lot of the stuff that didn't um picking up a few lessons from Techland, who obviously went on to go and do the dying light games and you know having a bit more of that mobility that was in there including drop kicks you can't have a first person zombie rpg <laughs> without drop kicking zombies everywhere you go it is essential yeah, yeah it, it's just it, absolutely it's like having a parry button in a souls game it was like, you, know, you have yeah. to have something similar but the the big thing is like the flesh system which is just what you know, deteriorates the zombies and just like, you know, knocks chunks off them and in that disgusting way. And for the slow zombies, especially, it's just so satisfying to just knock one flying and just seeing chunks of it just fly off with it and, or a jaw just hanging off after you smack it on there or like a limb being like all limp and flailing about because you smacked it at a certain angle. Sick as that may sound. Um, we are doing a horror game podcast, so you know, that's fair enough. But it's just fun. It's just such a fun game to play, and I, I had so much enjoyment and entertainment out of it. And every time I think about it, I think it's the Dead Island game I always wanted. You know, like that. Mm. And, you know, and the characters you can be are fun as well. I like that. You know, fun is all I want out of some games sometimes. Um, the horror elements are limited, but yeah, you know, apart from it's gore heavy. Yeah, you know, it's very much tongue in cheek in terms of what it's doing. 
Um, mileage may vary, of course, on that, but I just found it a delight. You know, and, and the way they cut it up into these very expansive chunks uh, mm. of open world, you know, that recreate LA, fantastic to uh, sort of go through. And yeah, I think the base game, great as it is, expansion, doing its own thing, brilliant. Like, uh, if it had been a standalone thing that was smaller, that would it would have been phenomenal as well. So it, it's just, yeah, it's my kind of zombie game in so many ways. And, you know, I'm so happy that it turned out as well as it did. Um, let's just hope their parent company... Don't uh, shit can them before they get to make anything else. You know? so. Right. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, while I haven't played Dead Island 2, again, talk about a game that's, you know, two ships passing the night, me and zombie games uh, this year and last year. Um, it is still a type of thing that, you know, you love the story behind it, right? Because you assumed it was never going to come out and then it comes yeah. out and it is as polished and at the same time delivering on a facet of zombie games that is sometimes overlooked, which you know, is the gore and the flesh system, which, you know, gore yeah. from the sense of like, yeah, all zombie games are bloody and whatnot, and you can dismember them. But to the Fulci degree with which you've described this game as having this <laughs> flesh dismemberment system, which, you know, is uh, singing the praises of a zombie game to, you know, the highest degree, I would think. Um, it's the type of game that, you know, while I've watched lots of footage of it, at the same time, I'm just like, fuck, I need to get my hands on this and actually experience that for myself. Um, because what Dead Island does with creativity in terms of like kills and dismemberments and weapon combinations, I've always seen as channeling like dead rising. Right. And to do that in first person is something that, you know, I would love to get to, you know, view my, I suppose, dismemberment and bloody handiwork uh, as close up as possible is something that I'm definitely kicking myself. I still haven't made time for it, but thus is what uh, I, you know, segment some games for the holidays. Right. I'm like, fuck, well, if I didn't play it, before the games of the year coverage, I'll definitely try to make time for it during the holiday because it seems from a structural standpoint and just, you know, how it's able to evolve on the first person zombie thing, which is at this point, you know, a little oversaturated. It's great to hear that you can have these, you know, zombie games that are still able to uh, leave a distinctive mark on that subgenre, which at times can be overcrowded. Yeah. Uh, and this is like pure fun in much the same way that like... um I've heard a lot of talk about the Robocop game where it's like people can look at it and go, yeah, there are fundamental things that aren't, you know, exactly uh, pushing limits or anything like that or breaking new ground. But it does, it scratches a certain itch, you know, a certain thing that you're like, this is doing exactly what I want it to do. And like that, that this is that for me. So I think they're quite um, good bunk mates effectively here at number eight, you know. I think they both. Uh, scratch the same itch terrific stuff well we're going to take a quick break when we come back we're going to chat about another best of category which will be multiplayer game and then we'll of course get into our number seven picks but more on that in a moment if you're an athlete you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down after all a team is only as good as its weakest link so you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field that's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. And we are back from our break, and we're going to dive right into what is my favorite category ever of horror games, 
favorite multiplayer games of the year. Um, Neil, for you, what was your favorite multiplayer horror game? So again, tough contest, to be fair. Um, The game I probably would have picked, I'm not going to pick just because it's coming up next. So so instead, I'm going to pick... um, a game that's uh, I mean in both cases these games aren't if you want to put it um, in quotes out yet really technically speaking Um, but The Outlast Trials by Red Barrels Um, I mean in much the same way when I was talking about the soundtrack thing um, where Alan Wake wins by virtue of the fact of what it does and how it does it um, kind of just pushes it beyond anything else Um, the the structure and setup of what the Outlast Trials is doing even now, you know, like in early access, if you will, is just mind-boggling to me. It's amazing, you know, what they're doing. Um, And I have such disdain for Red Barrel's games before this. So it it came as such a great surprise that it was so intense and so inventive. It takes the best parts of what Outlast has always been about and throws away some of the stupid conceits you know doing a found footage game where you don't really shouldn't be just holding a fucking camera to your thing and just and and that sequel the less said the better but they found something here you know they, they found a knack for storytelling in a multiplayer experience that is still like emerging but um this idea of just like a saw-esque um belco experiment whatever you want to call it sort of mishmash of, of things where you're still technically helpless to a degree you know but you have other people that can help you in that helplessness you know and um working together or not to um complete these trials and and the implications behind them you know that you complete them and your reward really is to just end up brainwashed <laughs> effectively which is just <laughs> fantastic i love that you know because in itself, it feels like this very sort of meta nod to you know, multiplayer games in general, live service games in general. It's like keep you on the hook to eventually get nothing out of it, really. You know, when you look, I mean, <laughs> you know, we're, we're all full victim to that. You know, there are games you'll play that are live service in some degree and go, you'll spend stupid money on it. And then in 10 years, you'll look back and go, why did I do that? <laughs> like that and the answer is you were invested in some way shape or form and really it, it's not really a waste of money if you waste money on stuff all the time but it's fine but here at least they are trying to make a structure to it this this idea of just going through with it anyway um it almost feels too smart for its own good in that regard i think maybe that's what might set it back I mean, it's coming to consoles next year, so that's good. We found that out recently as well, so that's going to be fantastic. Um, that will open it up to a whole new audience, and there is such scope for communication-heavy games again, you know. And um, which I'm, I have dreaded in, in years gone by, but uh, this was kind of eye-opening in a way for me. This and um, Pavlov VR. Um, were two games this year where I, I just played them and went, fucking hell, multiplayer, amazing. You know, when you, with communication, it and work, it, and just goofing around and stuff, uh, uh, even with a serious nature like the Outlast Trials has, 
it's just you you can't replicate that magic yeah and I, I, that very easily and yet we've had multiple examples of it you know the games i'm not even mentioning here uh are d uh, with the great multiplayer in the horror genre just it's been fantastic i i just um yeah i i, I get an inkling what you might be picking but so i, I won't go into that game but it it's just yeah i i, I can't get over how good the outlast trials is already you know, like that and as such i feel sufficiently that it's there and a fair game to be in this category yeah i mean this game left a tremendous impact on me even while it's in early access right and we've talked about our general disdain for uh the series <laughs> up until this point and you know i might have introduced this category of favorite multiplayer game of the year a bit facetiously uh because you know <laughs> as i've made it known i am not the biggest multiplayer gamer anymore but you know this was such a tremendous year for multiplayer games and i think that the outlast trials which is something i will be mentioning later down the road uh in a little bit more depth was a game that took something that was very much not for me for a majority of reasons and the fact that it is able to recontextualize it into a multiplayer framework and it be more meaningful from a gameplay standpoint a narrative standpoint and even just an aesthetic standpoint like this really does feel like this company is coming into their own with this brand that now this is the third game in this series that they're making. And it just it feels like from the ground up, it is kind of speaking to its own specific style of horror. And I think a big part of that is like the and I'll save this maybe for a little bit later, but uh, or in our next episode. Um, this is a game that, you know, I really love the, the creature design, the monster design in a way that I have never once associated with this series up until now. Uh, and that's all I'm going to say about that, because Outlast Trials absolutely deserves to be on a, our lists in some capacity, whether it's in a numbered pick for the year or whether it's one of these categories absolutely deserves to be mentioned. And even if it's not technically out yet, um, it's great to hear, though, that it's getting that console release. And of course, They've already proved they have um, they've shown a brief slice of sort of the roadmap, if you will, yeah. for what the continued support of this game is going to look like. Yeah. But for my pick for favorite multiplayer game um, and, you know, you probably already know it is going <laughs> to be the Texas Chainsaw Massacre game from Sumo yeah. Digital. Uh, no surprise there. Not only am I a huge fan of the films, obviously setting that aside, what I am so surprised at by Sumo Digital and what they were able to achieve with this is take that foundation from their stint on the Friday the 13th game, which as we've noted multiple times, unfortunately cut short and getting to see them sort of regroup, take a new IP of another beloved slasher and apply that to an asymmetrical framework in a way that is, I think, revitalizing that very sort of tried and true of a bunch of survivors versus one killer. And the fact they can recontextualize that into three killers versus four survivors in a way that doesn't feel completely unbalanced is, you know, one of the biggest, I think, achievements of the year in terms of multiplayer yeah. games. Um, because on paper, that sounds great. It's like, hey, let's make an even more intense and stressful situation for people that have no traditional means of defense. And doing that in a way that is both tactical and scary as shit is, you know, I'm floored by it every time I boot it up. And I can't say that, you know, all of a sudden, this is a game that's making me dive into multiplayer horror in a way that, you know, I can dedicate a great deal of time to throughout the week or the month or the year. 
Um, but it is the game that I've returned to the most. And every single time, I think it has been able to capture an aspect of horror and multiplayer that I generally don't necessarily experience. Um, it is also a fantastic use. We were talking about use of IPs. This is the best use, I think, of a horror IP from a film standpoint into a game um, that we've seen thus far. I know there's some games on the horizon. We've already seen some examples of games in the past that have utilized film IPs for a game adaptation. And I think this is the best use of it, mostly because what is initially there for this game on launch set the foundation that now they can expand on the IP in a way that feels very natural. And they've already shown that with their most recent update, a new map, a new killer. There are already new killers from day one, um, but it doesn't feel, I suppose, superficial, right? It doesn't feel like, oh, we're just going to have a, a new killer, a new family member, and they feel like just another killer, but they have a different skin to them or they have a different weapon or something. Each killer that's been introduced feels like they could have been part of that sort of manic line of Sawyer family or whatever name they're going by in this iteration, um, which has been really refreshing to see because I think my fear was, okay, the content that's there on day one might not differentiate that much from content that comes out down the line because of the fact that you're taking liberties with an IP and whatnot and this and that. Um, and so far, that has not been the case. Everything that's been added feels like it is moving things in a meaningful direction. It feels like it's adding new facets to gameplay. Um, and that has been my favorite multiplayer experience of the year because, you know, getting chased by Leatherface in the basement with that saw revving in my ear, it's the scariest multiplayer experience I've had outside of like a full team wipe in GTFO or something like that. Yeah, it is um, very survival horror in a lot of what it does. And, you know, the more I've thought on it, and, and since it released, the the more I kind of appreciate the model of sticking to an IP and um, really doubling down on it and expanding on it within that only. When you look at what many games are going for now, which is to be multimedia like things, you know, just to have um, characters from other things turn up in your games constantly. It, it was fun and interesting. And some games like Fortnite, it makes sense because that, that's how they built that game. Um, built it massively in the last few years, especially. But I don't know. It just, I, I like a singularity to a game that has a license and an IP where it's just like, nope, this is what it is. You're not going to get any wackadoodle characters in here that don't fit the mold. You're not going to have any game breaking changes that don't make sense to the kind of story we're trying to tell with our gameplay and you know we're gonna get into it obviously um because of the kind of game it is but dead by daylight's then is obviously the very obvious uh counterpoint here isn't it of like a game that is just stuffed full of ip and you know it has to fit within dead by daylight's framework but at the same time feel like individual things and that's a really difficult balance to pull off and as well as they do it um i think you don't really you do lose a bit of your own identity the further you go into that which is to be fair why it's quite good that you know they've got super massive games doing something in that universe like an original story that outside of the dead by daylight formula um because i think that will really help build what they do rather than what they get brought to them 
Um, so yeah, here, being Texas Chainsaw Massacre and just utilizing every little thing about it and then filling in like the blanks we didn't know about, like with you know different characters and things like that. It's yeah, really smart move. Just fantastic and means you aren't limited in a way that would be immediately the first question you'd ask looking at going, well, how far can you go like that if this is all you can do? You know, I know initially they only had certain licenses and it was not it was a never say never sort of thing in terms of like getting more um, in terms of that Texas Chainsaw universe. Um, so, you know, there's always that for the future, but that they're able to add their own stuff to it that isn't, and they're not having to worry about canon and all this nonsense and telling, you know, like integrated stories with other media makes it a lot easier. You know, I think it's, um, it also just helps us a bloody good multiplayer game that really just sort of changes that dynamic of the asymmetrical multiplayer horror as well. You know, having teams on either side, but still being mismatched in terms of numbers, but, you know, powers obviously still favoring the killers. So yeah, it is, wonderful cat and mouse game and um you know when we talk of um redemption stories guns is more a case of it's not really to do with anything they did wrong you know obviously with the friday the 13th sure. game it was the licensing issue that came with that but getting to make a game like this after all that and uh just doing so well that can't help but applaud it yeah it's a fine multiplayer game probably one of the best multiplayer games in any genre i think this year Absolutely. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. But that's going to lead us into my number seven pick, mm. uh, which is going to be Stasis Bone Totem from Brotherhood Games. Not on my list. And I will say, not to put you on the spot, if there's one game on my list that you have not played, I would implore you to play this one because it is so singularly tied to I know what your interests are. And that being, you know, uh, Lovecraftian aquatic horror. Uh, and, you know, I gushed about this game earlier in the year. And it is one of those games that is kind of just like taking up res permanent residence in my brain um, because first off, it solves an issue of a lot of these isometric RPGs that is kind of a no brainer. And that's the fact that you are able to tell a story in multiple locations with multiple characters and have their inventory be interchangeable between the three of them, right? That is singularly one of the biggest pluses of this game that sounds like okay that sounds like a maintenance thing but really you know it allows the overall flow of the game to be more streamlined and it also allows the narrative and the exploration of that world to be explored in i think more interesting ways which means that no matter where a character is in their location on this oil rig they are able to basically transfer their key items that are used to solve puzzles and whatnot between the three of them at will no matter where their location is so gone are the days of searching for one person on one side of the map, giving them this item, then running an item back, like all of that sort of, I don't know, I suppose padding of these yeah. sort of RPGs from the past is no longer an issue with Stasis Bone Totem. The world itself, as I said, you're exploring this oil rig out in the middle of the ocean with no sort of way to get away or no help. And you're exploring the mystery of what was essentially the undoing of this. And you learn about the experiments that were going on there and whatnot is... A fantastic setting. You know, you think about uh, William Ebank's um, Underwater from a few years ago with Kristen yeah. Stewart, right? It is that, but even more sort of weird horror merging with sci-fi. Um, and what I really love about it is that 
you get that traditional survival horror aspect when you're interacting with objects or you're solving puzzles. I suppose it's a little akin to like mist or something, right? You get that yeah. sort of close up of whatever you're looking at, except it's a lot more tactile. It's a lot more involving in terms of the puzzles and whatnot. Um, so, and it has a really fantastic art style and there's a little bit of body horror in there. There's definitely a hell of a lot of sci-fi aquatic horror in there. Um, and I think that what also sets this apart, and it probably is the most, I suppose, um, Baldur's Gate aspect of this is the fact that the writing is not only so fantastic, no matter what you're interacting with, whether it is, you know, a major plot point, whether it's I'm looking at a filing cabinet whether I'm, you know, interacting with just this seemingly innocuous item that I find in an environment, everything is not only incredibly detailed, but it varies based on which character you are interacting with at that moment. So it is a reflection of their personality, whether it is, you know, the two scavengers who are a husband and wife, whether it is this uh, cyborg teddy bear that is on your team called Moses and, you know, his views of what human life is and him having this kind of commentary on his view of humanity and sort of the, the shortcomings of humanity versus, you know, his very cybernetic centric mind. Mm. And then at the same time, there is this sort of, you know, recalling of the past of what occurred previously to the player actually arriving in this universe and how that is such a burden amongst all three of these characters in very different ways. Um, it makes for an RPG that I think is very focused in telling the narrative of the horror that the player is experiencing. And at the same time, it is capturing the horror of what these characters have experienced before the supernatural occurs. And I think that is a, you know, really a beautiful blending of two very different narrative styles that kind of is coalesced into um, a game that really has some fantastic puzzles that again are reflective of their world and it is a game that I have been unable to stop thinking about. And while it has gotten a decent amount of fanfare, um, it is the type of game that I think any game of the year list would be remiss not to include at least some mention of because it really is a standout. And it's a continuation of, you know, the Stasis games. I believe this is the second or third entry in that sort of universe. It's not always a continuation yeah. of the narrative, but it's a continuation of the universe itself. Um, and I would say this is the best instance of that, the most refined from a artistic standpoint, a narrative standpoint, and just a gameplay standpoint in general. Yeah. And, you know, when you were talking about it, obviously I went to look at Steam and uh, to buy it and then realized, of course, I bought it the last time you talked about it. <laughs> so, there we go. There you go. So My job it, is done. <laughs> yeah. The, the, we were talking about this earlier, um, I think before we started about you know, certain games we want to get around to playing we just end up buying them and uh, if yeah. we play them or not, in time or not we do or don't I think last year when you did that there's like uh, three or four games on your list that you sort of brought up and I was like oh yeah I think during the recording I was like yeah I'll buy that buy that buy that buy that and it was like <laughs> but um, yeah uh, time wise meant I, did, I didn't get around to every game on, on PC more proof that I need a Steam Deck, I think, uh, than anything else. Um, <laughs> he says live on air to uh, justify buying one at this point. But yeah, it, it looks really cool. Uh, there's no better compliment than being told that while you're describing something, somebody is actually actively buying it. So uh, <laughs> we'll definitely have to return to that one once you get a chance to play that. But in the meantime, you're going to tell us all about your number seven pick. 
And my number seven pick, and this is a late entry in terms of it, is Lethal Company by Azikas. Um, this is very much a viral hit in so many ways. But it is way, it came out in October. Steam already has like an overwhelmingly positive review space of like 120,000 reviews. So, you know, that's fucking hell. And it's still yeah. in early access. And it's made by one guy, basically. You know, it's like... Um, and when I was talking about um, the Outlast Trials and how great the multiplayer, this is this this is fucking good shit. You know, I mean, for <laughs> what it, it is basic in so many ways of what it's doing, it, it has a very cel shaded look, and you know there is content that's clearly not quite there yet, but the fundamentals are absolutely bloody there, and they make great work of it. Now, the idea of this game is you you work for a, a company where you go to abandoned industrialized moons uh, to help the company's profit quota by getting all the stuff you can from these places. You're free to explore them as a team. Um, communication is key, obviously, for getting around. Uh, but the things you come up against uh, are, I suppose you would call cryptids and SCP-style things. Of like They each have their own rules. When you go into these places, and you know you have to adhere to those rules and learn those rules, and that's half the fun because um, dying is one of the funniest fucking things that you will ever see in this game. Um, like before, I actually bought the game. The first thing I'd seen was like a TikTok video of like um, a team and a guy just sort of showing the other guy like I got a ladder for this job like that and it, it, this ladder basically comes out of a bag and just sort of extends and then drops down <laughs> drop down it literally just drops yep. down on the, the teammate's head and just kills them like that yep. like that and when you do that you know teammates are taken out you know, they can't communicate with you anymore with the proximity chat <laughs> any of that so you know, don't do a disservice for yourself by doing like discord chat or something like that it, it, the best thing about this is the fact that you can lose contact with people and like <laughs> when a creature takes one of your teammates like that, it's just hilarious how badly things go. And the sheer variety of creature ideas and things like that, you know, stuff that is, you know, based on pop culture stuff, look at this thing or you know, it will keep moving or, you know, do this certain action to make sure it doesn't move on you. Um, there's these weird bug things where you, you have to sort of offer up like a an offering to uh, try and get past them and you don't know exactly what it is they want and stuff like that. And it's just the nature of people in that game. I hate being on chat. I really do in games, but in the right game, and I was talking about this with Pavlov earlier, it just brings back the magic. And talking with complete strangers on this, Maybe staying up too late for a weeknight, you know, like that, just to um, have a couple of beers and just have fun with this game really just makes it something special. And you know, the communication is so key. And even when it goes wrong, it's fun. And um, you don't feel that frustration of, oh, you fucked this up sort of thing, because the consequences are, as I said, hilarious, you know, like, like whatever yeah. happens. Yeah, at times you will just be in a, a team situation thinking you've got things under control and like suddenly someone goes dark and you're like, oh, fuck, where are you? Like that. And, and it just, and <laughs> or like, I mean, there's, there's an enemy that like only one player will be able to see like that, like a ghost thing like that. Yeah, like that. So 
you get these instances of people going, I've just seen this, I've just seen this, like that. It's like, and everyone's just like, I don't fucking see a thing. I like that. It plays with so many different things. And it, this is it. The ambition of this game is just absolutely ridiculous. You know, even in this early stage, again, early access, but this many people loving it for what it is just shows you. And it's not just because it's viral, you know, and you can condense it into short videos, though, honestly, if you don't even ever play the game, watch any video of this game and it's the just great because of what it does you know all great sort of sandbox environments or, or you know freeform environments give you something like that um and yeah there are just so many surprises that this game throws at you already um and you know part of the reason i want to include it here now even though it's early access is because we don't know what way the future will go you know it's like the future might go into a similar theme where it's like okay the magic's died a bit and maybe it's not quite as special now and other games will probably no doubt come out and try to do the same thing um but it takes a bit of that sort of extraction shooter sort of thing without being about being a shooter that you know games like hunt have done really well um but brings it with that sort of mass market appeal that something like among us did you know where it, it simplifies it whilst being complicated in a way that matters where you know being bad at it isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world because you will probably bring some kind of enjoyment to everyone else um, <laughs> by being bad at it hilarity will ensue regardless of skill level yeah it just it it's something again where you to play it is to really experience it for the best ways but yeah, any videos you can watch this game will just show you straight away that it is something magical. And like, yeah, I, I can't stress enough how refreshing it is as a multiplayer experience. And to me, all the best multiplayer experiences are about failure being part of the game, you know, like that and how you can make that enjoyable and not frustrating. You know, no one wants to be like dicked over in a multiplayer game over and over again and just be railroaded by high level players co-op games where dying or failing like this just great i love it. i love it it is just fundamentally yeah I, I wanted to roll my eyes at it at first because it was that kind of game it's a tiktok game whatever you want to call it like that in that in terms of like having anecdotal moments but you can have those anecdotal moments playing it right now like that and you know it's like it's less than a tenner. Like that. And to, you know, for what it is, absolutely amazing. You know, like that. I, I, I've really grown to enjoy everything that it does. But, you know, I suppose on the, the flip side of that is I almost don't want to play it again until it's out because the worry is that, you know, you kind of burn yourself out on it. In much the same way I felt like in the early days of um, Hunt, where... You know, it's like, okay, concept's good, like what it's doing, don't want to burn myself out on this if it's going to be the same sort of thing over and over again. And you, you sort of come back uh, periodically and do whatever you can with it. And you have a better experience for it. So I, I think it will be that kind of game where don't don't just run yourself into the ground playing it, but play a bit here and there, and it's just great. Absolutely great. How you know, Whatever skill level you play with, whatever knowledge, but in these early months where some things are still a mystery, are going to be the best. Yeah, you know, I've really been enjoying a lot of the content that I've seen, most of it going viral uh, <laughs> online, just because, A, it's nice seeing 
another mass market horror multiplayer experience that can blow up to this degree. And like you mm. said, a big part of that is probably the relatively low, um, I suppose, cost of dying, right? It's the reason yeah. why something like, uh, as much as I'll sing the praises of something like GTFO, I understand why that game is never going to appeal to more than niche audience because of how devastating the cost yeah. of death and failure is in that. And to see something like this that is able to have that low threshold um, in terms of penalties for dying, but at the same time, the barrier to entry, like you said, is like 10 bucks. Relatively, it's not that complex of an experience, but it's able to elicit both, you know, hilarity and also like hilarious horror because, you know, there was that moment where you mentioned that video where somebody basically gets taken out by what reminded me of like a death stranding ladder um, mm. that kind of just like retracts and then cracks him in the head and takes him out. But at the same time, the clip that I've been showing my buddies that are not big into horror games has been the one where it's like two guys that are basically, they open up a door and all of a sudden they just see like these long spider legs peer around the <laughs> corner. And then they're like, fuck that shit. I'm out. And it's like, they close the browser or something like that. Yeah. And like little moments like that, are the types of things that I could actually like sell my buddies on because it's like, Hey, it's 10 bucks. Like we can all afford that, but you guys can take a week off from a Fortnite skin or, you know, a FIFA skin or whatever the fuck or FIFA pack and buy this instead. And we can play this for a couple of hours. Um, so that's definitely the type of game where it's like, it's able to have both sides of that multiplayer coin, uh, in terms of like fun amongst yourselves and then actually like experiencing the game, uh, for what it's supposed to be. And yeah, that's been, again, one of those games that, as you mentioned, uh, is made by, you know, one person or very few people, and it's able to have this kind of impact. And, you know, entertainment standpoint, um, it's hard not to champion something like that. So I understand why that's on your list, even if, you know, it's still in uh, early access. And you just hope that ceiling for the potential continues to grow um, while it is sort of in that uh, early access purgatory, if you will, before having a final release. Yeah, I think the generally random nature of what you come up against will be such a big factor in it, sort of retaining like that. Um, because even if one person's like really okay with everything that's going on in the game, like, oh, I know if you do this for this, like, someone else can ruin that instantly. <laughs> and, and, yeah. In a way, you know, much is made of like multiplayer games being like a bastard when people aren't playing by the rules. But I love games where people don't play by the rules or manipulate the rules, and that's <laughs> the point. So, yeah, I, I love that way where stupidity can just make a game even better, almost. You know? yeah. So, yeah, it is just ridiculously good, even in this early stage. But that's going to bring us to our final best of category for this week, which is going to be your favorite use of gore in a game. Ooh. Ooh. which you know when we talk about games we kind of make us we make an effort not to be like what was the scariest part of this game what was the bloodiest part of this game but in a game in a year such as this that has had you know as much of a variety as we've mentioned um it feels noteworthy in a way that perhaps it hasn't been in uh past years yeah i want to kind of go with a two-way tie for the top here i think yeah because um i, I love dead island 2's flesh system I think it is just understated in how phenomenally fun it is you know, if you're a sicko uh, to see that working. <laughs> but Trapang as well, you know, just like the, how um, intense that can be. You know, it's almost the pink mist sort of levels of just ridiculousness. Um, it's a very different kind of gore, you know, like that. 
So yeah, I, I, as different ends of the spectrum, I like those two. You know, like that as much as um the great remakes of this year in, uh, have done some phenomenal work there in detail. I think um in terms of like systems, uh, I think Dead Island Two is just superb what it does, and Trepang is um more integrated into like the the pace and uh, gameplay. Yeah, Trepang Two definitely had. In terms of like, I suppose this is, of course, a, after uh, my pick, which I'll mention in a second, like the feedback, especially we've been talking about like shotguns a lot recently um, on Safe Room. And that game, I mean, talk about channeling fear in the best way possible and even elevating that with the fluidity of more modern shooters where, you know, there's no there's nothing like sliding around a corner in slow motion and turning a guy into mist with the Spaz 12 in that game, because it is just wonderfully uh fucked up and bloody and gory in the best way possible but um for me my pick was going to be resident evil 4 um i think that that game again it builds upon what was established with resident evil 2 remake in terms of adding more gore more blood um but i think that with resident evil 4 you know the responsiveness of all the weapons the fact that you have the level of feedback that you do in the zombies that you're fighting or the infected of las plagas in that um, is second to none, I would say, this year. And especially, again, talking about shotguns, the fact that you can not, it's not to the degree that you're turning guys into red mist, but the fact that entire sections of bodies are gone, their heads, the whole you know section of their arms and stuff is gone, and then they take those couple of steps forwards after a shotgun blast and then fall is um, you know devastatingly fitting, I think, for that game. And like we've mentioned previously, if you have a horror game or a survival horror game that has a shotgun, if it's not that level of devastating, you fucked up in a pretty significant way. And I think that Resident Evil 4, for me, was an example of taking something that was already effective and modernizing it in a way that feels like a natural progression. And it doesn't feel, I suppose, like, it doesn't feel as if it's like, oh, this is clearly added. It just feels like a natural continuation of what was there to begin with. But due to limitations of this or that, uh, they were unable to do that. So, you know, Resident Evil 4, I think for me, as somebody that played an inordinate amount of time uh, with that game this week, yeah, that's definitely my pick because it is devastating. And it's not only a capital D devastating, but it's something even bigger than that because it is uh, quite effective in that regard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the modern Resis have all been great at sort of conveying gore and, and the splicer nature of it. So, yeah, that, that's a good show. But before diving into our number six picks, I figure we'll do a quick recap of mm -hmm. uh, what we've mentioned previously. And so for me, my number 10 was going to be Dredge. Uh, mine was The Walking Dead Saints and Sinners 2. For my favorite new IP, my pick was My Friendly Neighborhood. Uh, it was Killer Frequency for me. My number nine was Aliens Dark Descent. Uh, mine was Varney Lake. My favorite soundtrack of the year was Oxenfree 2 Lost Signals from Scientific. And mine was the very multifaceted uh, Alan Wake 2 sound. My number eight was Robocop Rogue City. Uh, my number eight was Dead Island 2. My favorite multiplayer game of the year was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre of the Game. And mine was The Outlast Trials. My number seven was Stasis Bone Totem. And mine was Lethal Company. And my favorite use of gore of the year was Resident Evil 4. And mine was the split decision of Trepang and Dead Island 2. Now, my number six pick for the year, talk about 12th hour decisions. And it is a game that has occupied an inordinate amount of time uh, over the last week to the degree that I had many 
like one or two a.m. nights, which is something I haven't done <laughs> since I was probably in college with the game. Um, and my number six pick was Darkest Dungeon 2 from developer Red Hook Studios. I absolutely love the original game. And I did not get to Darkest Dungeon 2 until, you know, the last week and a half, mostly because of the trepidation I had about the fact that they fundamentally rewrote a core aspect of this game. Mm. The original game, Roguelite, uh, Dark Grim, Dungeon Crawler. This game completely does away with dungeons in the traditional sense. In the original game, you were quite literally thrown into a dungeon and exploring the different rooms and whatnot that were in that dungeon. And in this it does away with that in favor of giving you a carriage and you're basically going along this multi-tiered route and you get to pick which direction you want to go at certain forks in the road. Each one of those forks basically has some type of allusion to, okay, this will be a combat heavy road. This will have a trader maybe. This will have like a hospital or something. And you go through all these different decisions basically to influence what kind of experience you'll have on this run and basically you can kind of avoid combat or you can kind of lean into combat, which of course the benefit of that is greater rewards, right? Whether it's XP, whether it's new items and sort of that traditional sort of reward. And quite frankly, I thought this was a stupid idea for a sequel. They had such a fundamentally, in my opinion, flawless approach to the dungeon crawler in delivering a game that was so hardcore horror medieval RPG and at the same time, you know, it was punishingly difficult in a way that, you know, a sicko like me was really into. Even if I'm not always into super difficult games, I was so into the world and the art style and the ways in which you could kind of capture a little bit of that XCOM magic of having this party member that you could go along with for a long while, have these crazy experiences and then, you know, seeing how long you can keep them alive basically before, unfortunately, and typically they end up biting the bullet type of thing. So you have these devastating experiences that end up being incredibly memorable in a way that I don't associate with a lot of horror RPGs. And to hear that the sequel was doing away with the format of the original, I was just not into. Um, but color me surprised when I actually sit down and play this game. And while I don't necessarily think that carriage framework of it is a better alternative, it is incredibly fitting for this specific experience and a continuation of Darkest Dungeon, which continues with the aspects that made the original such a phenomenal standout. And at the same time, it evolves and it refines them in a way that, again, this has become my new 1, 1 a.m. game. Uh, <laughs> I'm not somebody that typically, you know, I play games in short bursts these days just because of how my schedule is. And this yeah. is a game that I'll sit down and play for like three hours at a minimum because it's the type of thing where it's like I can't stop pushing my sort of the uh, extent of the life of these party members. <laughs> and I think that that's probably the best compliment I can give to this game. And the fact that the developers have reiterated mechanics that were in the original game and haven't completely done away with them, but they've refined them to the degree that it continues that one more sort of, um, I suppose, one more round mentality of like, I want to push to the next, the next milestone. I want to push to the next thing. I want to push to the next sort of, uh, continuation of getting to the mountaintop, which is basically like the Lovecraftian hell that you're kind of further progressing towards. Um, and, you know, a big facet of that, and, you know, this kind of speaks to my obsession with monster designing games, is the fact this art style is absolutely one of my favorites, not only of the year, but I think overall with games. Um, you know, the original game was strictly 2D. 
This game adopts 2D, 3D, and the backgrounds are mostly 3D, and there's a little bit of uh, dimensional 3D complexity, I think, to those 2D uh, images of the monsters and the environments and whatnot. But even if certain enemies that you encounter in this RPG feel like they might be sort of familiar RPG standards, which being, you know, there's a goblin, there's a bandit, there's a dog. Everything is so brimming with personality and has a dark horror tint to it or a dark fantasy tint to it that it feels distinctly unique to Darkest Dungeon in a way that can only be the byproduct of, you know, the creatives at Red Hook Studios. Um, I would say that, you know, it is still an incredibly punishing game, but I would say that there is more wiggle room for success periodically before you get to like a crazy boss encounter. I mean, granted, last night I played for an hour on one run, got all the way to the boss and then had some kind of crazy critical role that killed two of my favorite party members and ended in <laughs> defeat. And yet, a testament to this being what I think is probably the perfect roguelite in that every, even in defeat and death, the meta aspect of this game is setting you up for success in the next run to a certain degree. Um, so, you know, you're always building towards unlocking more characters, unlocking new abilities for classes and whatnot, unlocking new items that you can potentially purchase at an inn or a trader and whatnot. And it is made for a game that I think I am on track to spending far more time with than even the original. And I love the original Darkest Dungeon. Uh, shout out to uh, not only guest of the show, but uh, friend of the show, Aaron Bame, who, you know, basically talked me off a ledge when I was kind of like, oh, do I buy this or do I not buy this because of the changes and whatnot? Um, and also keyed me in that if I own the original, I could get a discount on this one, which uh, you yeah. know was kind of... The straw that broke uh, my very sort of, I suppose, <laughs> uh, resistant back to buying more games than I uh, can actually afford at times. But it is the type of game that uh, I could just see myself playing for, you know, another 50 hours. And I've probably put 10 hours into it roughly um, just because there is that amount of depth to this game. And the fact that, you know, it's building upon a game that I already loved and it is fundamentally changing things. But at the same time, it is strengthening the aspects that were the strongest, I think, in that original um, is something that, you know, is definitely worth championing. And it is a shame that I think this game was an Epic Games exclusive for as long as it was, um, because this game was in early access since 2021 and it has been finally released this year. That's why I, I consider it to be uh, eligible for my list. And unfortunately, being on Epic Games and it, the Epic Games Store, the fact that there were there is still, I suppose, that sort of uh, resentment towards exclusivity on that platform and whatnot kind of, I think, took the legs out from this to allow it to have the sort of monumental um, release that the original did, I think is a big shame because, you know, once you can look past that new mechanic of the caravan, which I still don't think is a better alternative, it at least feels fitting within the context of this game. And the other aspects are strengthened to the degree that even if that aspect isn't sort of the deal breaker for me that I assumed it would be. Um, so yeah, Darkest Dungeon 2 is, oh my goodness, that's a game I'm going to be playing for at least another year because I just, <laughs> I keep coming back to it. And even when it, you know, kind of beats me over the head and leaves me for dead on the side of the road, uh, I'm more than willing to kind of dive back into the fray with that because it's something I cannot stop playing and continually has surprises in store for me, whether that be a narrative aspect whether that be a monster design aspect, whether it be a combat design aspect, um, it is a game that I think 
upped its game significantly at every sort of conceivable turn. Yeah, and um, I think it's, it's taken that great turn that sequels to turn-based games do, where they really do just get to do all the things they wanted to do the first time around and really just expand upon it. You know, I'm going to invoke my almost Yu-Gi-Oh-esque um, card of the week and, and say XCOM. You know, yeah. Like, okay, yeah <laughs> but yeah, it is the, like, the difference between um, Enemy Within to XCOM to War of the Chosen where yeah, they are fundamentally the same game but the levels in there make you know the game that you played for a quite a long time into a game that you play a ridiculous amount of hours you know like that a game that you'll come back to again and again and again um you know I, i'm in some ways i i was a staunch defender of like you know, epic games getting games exclusively for their store i get the idea they want to compete the problem is um it's like using one search in a search engine over another, isn't it? Because it's fine if you're in that search engine, you'll get the benefits of that search engine and all the bad things with it, sure. Which is your Steam is your Google, effectively. Um, whereas, you know, Epic is Bing, let's be honest. And, um, it, yeah, uh, fittingly, because, yeah, that's what happens. So what happens is a game that should get massive hype will... Um, kind of lose something in not being um more widely available alan wake 2 also suffered that uh, i think on pc uh for that reason and yeah pc players are very <laughs> stick much stickless for you know that kind of thing um steam Casual. is easy yeah you know, steam is like part of the ecosystem i i get that um doesn't mean it has to be but epic's way of around that isn't working you know like that paying big money i get it you've got enough money to do it epic at this point fortnite made them enough money to do whatever the fuck they want in the same way that you know windows did for microsoft you know they, they can just keep printing money you know and um they'll, they'll be fine you know never more true in the fact that you know they've now turned fortnite into multiple games on one platform so yeah I get it, but I think um, it's unfair for Darkness Dungeon 2 that it ended up getting that because these games get forgotten, as you said. You know, the fact they came out in... Tw- I didn't even realise it came out in 2021. So, <laughs> that, let alone that it got more widely released this year. So, uh, that's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, um, it really ruins it. Unless you are, like, ultimately invested in the game you are uh, having on Epic Games, you, you, you're just not going to get that. And... It, it's going to pass you by and that you know we've talked at length about accessibility to games that, that uh, matter and you know having a, the widest audience possible and while i accept that you know money is there to be made for companies when they want to make their games if they are tied to say a game pass or an epic games like that the consequence is you might not be as well remembered you know like um I look at the game of the year list and stuff like that. Hi-Fi Rush was like this massively big thing you know, like yeah. that when it came out because of the surprise launch and it's a really good game. Not getting a look in really. And I think it suffers somewhat because of the uh, way it came out. Yeah. And uh, I think the same is true of Darkest Dungeon 2. It will come out and 
another part of it is indie games with sequels really do struggle. You know, it's really odd. I don't get why that happens because it should be as anticipated as any mainstream big budget sequel. But every time I look at a direct sequel to a game that was like really big in the indie space, nearly every time there's like some sort of apathy or just pure disdain. You know, like that um, Amnesia Rebirth uh, was one we talked about, Spelunky 2, things like that. Just games that you think, this is more of what you want. I I mean, even Inside compared to Limbo, you know, Inside is like massively superior. It's just like the height of that company's like ideas and never got to do what it wanted to do because it was kind of swept to the side by because we were no longer in the period where indies were allowed to be at the front of the queue uh, because you know the big studios were like you know fiddling around in their shorts waiting to pick out the next best <laughs> game they could think of and that's it isn't it, it, it yeah. we just got into more of a coexistence where there are the big games and they are making the money they are getting the coverage yeah it, this is Time to turn to a rant. So it's not. Let's not go any further than that. <laughs> it's a whole other podcast, but I think that you know, I I definitely agree. Right? It's the thing that sequ- indie sequels have this tough dilemma of people that are like, oh, I want more of that, and then some mm. people that that's not good enough. And I think that unfortunately, Darkest Dungeon two not having you know being as widely available on platforms as it was with the original game because of that exclusivity it suffered from that and the sort of animosity that came with the platform that it was destined to be on during the course of early access. I mean, granted I'm part of the problem, right? I didn't buy it until it was on steam and it was as recently as like a week and a half or two weeks ago. Um, but it is the thing where it's like doing my small part, I think, and just trying to champion a game that, um, it definitely deserves a lot more hype than it's been getting. And if anything, um, it's an example of a game that you can't be afraid of change, right? I'm always kind of like essentially, saying that about a lot of things, whether it's, you know, you and I talking about uh, sequels to films and whatnot, or even just games. It's like, yeah, you can't be afraid of change. And I think that Darkest Dungeon 2 is a perfect example of that because change is for the better most of the time. And who's to say that, you know, in further expansions, DLC, or even the inevitable Darkest Dungeon 3 won't take the lesson learned from 2 and expand on that in an even more meaningful way that propels this brand into, uh, you know, its next phase of... uh, punishingly masochistic sort of RPG turn-based uh, fashion and whatnot. But for our last game of the week to chat about, you're going to tell us all about your number six pick. Yeah, and my uh, number six pick is Homebody by uh, Game Grumps. Have, uh, it's obviously a bit of an outlet here because it's a famous YouTube channel, mainly first and foremost. Um, so the best way to describe a homebody is Clock Tower by way of Groundhog Day. You know, it's um, or Happy Death Day if you really want to call it. it that proved a more relevant sort of um, modern take, uh, where you basically control this character in a very you know fits cameras, all the, the stuff like that. Uh, a reunion between friends, um, their own personal history is uh, bubbling up under the surface, and at a certain point. The time is always going by as you're doing all these things and the power goes out and a killer suddenly uh, is on the loose in this remote house that you've come to. 
And the idea is you are to stop everyone getting murdered and figure out your way out of this time loop. Because every time you die, time loop or the time reaches a certain point, the time resets back to the to the beginning of the loop. Um, either way, and that in itself, you know, it's been done. You know, the time loop thing, we we've seen that. But in the slash slasher context, it makes so much sense that it was done like this. Um. But the visual style of this is just phenomenal to me. You know, I think you know, considering it is so lo-fi in terms of like the character models and stuff like that. Uh, one of the things we've championed a lot is um, Tender Doves game. Yeah, you know, that that game, uh, which is you know, going through its uh, production phase after kickstarting, because of similar vibes. You know, in terms of like taking a very established idea of what a survival horror game should look like and then kind of drawing it back in some respects and then pulling it in a whole new direction. And, you know, this time loop thing where each run you learn different things about the house and how to get further into the house and exploring new depths to it, it's a really cool way to do a survival horror game. Where, you know, normally it's progression of, like, I found key A, to get to area B like that, and you now unlock, unlock the next area. It's there, but it is very much tied to the idea that you only have this information if you learn it in the last run. And yeah, it's got that roguelike element, I suppose, to it where you are, but where the only thing you really carry over is your knowledge, and that is it. You know, and I like that so much about this. And the, the the overarching story that is going on in this game is just so bloody interesting. You you have so much about it that intrigues you about what's going on, what's the connection to this, like that, and all the things you learn in conversation with the different characters really bring it to the fore and make it a really compelling game. And you know, I thought, you know, Game Grumps obviously, you know, the, the people involved there. They aren't the developers of this game. You know, there is someone they know that has developed it as a game. But the fundamentals of it, you know, in terms of like you do certain puzzles, you escape the killer when they do arrive and stuff like that. It just ticks so many boxes for me in terms of like classic survival horror, you know, like pre-Resident Evil. Almost, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, Clock Tower is that obvious sort of influence point. You know, this is a game that um, Trevor Henderson, you know, the the famous you know, horror artist and creator, and you know, and fellow Bloody FM member, um, loved you know, as one of his favorite games. So, and, and I can totally see why because the, the cryptic, um, cosmic nature of what's going on in this game really just it's astounding I, I mean game grumps only other sort of game development story was um dream daddy which was like a a dating simulator you know thing that was very different to this and i didn't know what to expect i did not expect a game quite this in depth you know and i was blown away by what it did you know and going back into it and Visually, it's so simplistic in what it does. You know, these very simple characters in terms of design and everything is very, you know, 
not like yeah when we talk about horror bite stuff like there's a certain graphical level it's slightly above that but it's not going all the way up to that next level which is that sort of what you call double a level and i like that about it because it's really expressive despite that you know it really gets across what it's doing it manages to give you a lot of variety in what it's doing you know like what one of my favorite things in like one of my first runs is like just chatting with people in the room like trying to discover why someone seems to be really off with you and yeah you get to play like a video game on the tv that's really simple and like the power goes out and then you know that initial panic comes in and yeah just finding the, the many different ways this story can go you know without being the actual story it is just something i i didn't know i wanted to i got it you know i think it's probably the closest game to me to what Deathloop did in terms of like really utilizing the time loop thing right yeah properly you know in a roguelike sense and um making it integral to the story being told and yet the um oddball abstract nature of some of the cutscenes and things like that as you learn the story just give it this wonderful sort of vibe you know it's just too much about it though i it's difficult to sort of explain exactly what it is about it that makes it so special but yeah the, it's well, another one I don't of those know. games you've done a pretty good job of it <laughs> you've done a pretty good job of explaining why it's unique without explicitly yeah. revealing more than you should right which i think is probably the perfect way to discuss a game such as this right you've highlighted the aspects that are clearly you know to some level like a homage to media that has dealt with that groundhog's day scenario but at the same time what you've been saying is there's like an extra depth to the world and mechanics outside of just the fact that you know you've got this groundhog day scenario which if anything it shows that you know they have built a world around that i'll call it a gimmick um rather than it just being a game you can sell on the fact that it has this time loop gimmick thing to it you actually are invested in the world and the players within that world um which you know i not that i wasn't already sold on the game but if anything just the reiteration of that it makes me feel like okay I'm going to invest time into this game eventually once I get around to it because of the fact that, you know, it's not just, oh, I want to run through this time loop and see how many times I can, how I can experiment. It's more about like you're gaining more of an understanding and an investment every time you go back because it's like, oh, I can get this new line of dialogue from this person or that person or use something I learned on the last run to influence an interaction or perhaps a puzzle or something next time I kind of run through this never ending seemingly loop. Yeah, and it's just some weird, fun stuff in there, like almost immersive sim, like that you can read a couple of books, um, like Dracula, I think, and Frankenstein are the ones that you can um, sort of read in like every damn page of the story, like that. It's just just a weird addition, but um, mm-hmm. kind of make, kind of makes sense in in certain um, respects, but. I really did like that. I mean, you know, I, I've spoken at length about what I find interesting about it. You know, it's words at the end of the day. Um, whether they worked in sequence is a, another sort of a question. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I it is one of those games where I just 
the more I keep thinking about it, the more I'm thinking, God damn, that, that really did just <laughs> do something. You know, the more I, I can't, you know, even though I finished it and, you know, I don't think I have anything more to see from it now at this point, it did enough. You know, I the time I spent with it was just so experimental and so interesting and just unfurling a mystery and progression didn't feel stunted you know like that there was just enough um ingenuity in what it was where you would just learn you know as, as you go and you would progress that little bit that little bit that little bit and you know death was part of the, the plan you know and, and it worked so well yeah so it, it is just i mean the killer is just always seems to know exactly what you're doing and um yeah, you know, getting chased by a killer in, in any game is always a make or break situation if you're going to do it right or wrong. Uh, and here, I think you know, the fact that you know you aren't the sole target and the other characters you're interacting with, they could just be killed at random at any time, depending on what you've done and what order and how you've attracted the killer's attention. Makes for a really good, cool, and you get to learn the layout of the house and then beyond the house and all this stuff. It's a great use of space, you know, like that. And and with the fixed camera stuff, I think it really does just keep you familiar with each place in a way that I don't think a free roaming camera does. Hmm. Well, again, a it sounds like a fantastic blending of you know so many uh, genres and tropes and whatnot that I'm such a fan of. Where it's like slasher, Groundhog Day aspect at the same time, fixed camera angles. And then at the same time, a little bit of a immersive sim influence just kind of makes this game sound like, again, something I'm kicking myself that I haven't made time for, but uh, that's what the holidays break is for, right? Um, <laughs> it is, though, the type of thing where it's just like, it's, again, fantastic when you take a step back and you look at the year as a whole and you're looking at the different spectrums of the horror space or just games in general, right? And you kind of can look at, of course, the big AAA stuff. You can look at the mid-tier indie things and then you can look at games that like most people probably haven't heard of and we have these stellar standouts from you know a multitude of reasons right it's either gameplay design art design or at the same time it could just be you know something that is bringing people together and experiencing something um it just furthermore just speaks to what i think you know we both love about the sort of games of the year coverage and the end of the year wrap up and whatnot as hectic as it as hectic as it can be um this is the time of year where it's like it's nice to kind of decompress with either re-experiencing or playing something for the first time because it's just like this fantastic reminder of just sort of the beauty of games and uh furthermore you know how every single year whether or not we thought it was in bigger quote a good year or a bad year not to sort of <laughs> overly generalized about an entire year of effort and creativity that goes into games. But um, I think that it is furthermore just a reminder that it's like you have to look at the whole spectrum of games, right? Yeah. And that's something obviously we champion on the show constantly. Uh, and we will continue to champion in our part two coverage of our games of the year episode, um, which you guys should be on the lookout for next year. In addition to our, as you know, while we might be taking this Thursday off from our typical Horror Bites coverage, the following week, when part two of our Games of the Year coverage comes out, you guys should be on the lookout for our Horror Bites coverage of the year, which we'll be detailing um, our five favorite Horror Bites of the year. So be on the lookout for Games of the Year coverage part two, detailing our picks five through number one, 
next week in addition to our Horror Bites of the Year coverage detailing our top five picks. Um, so yeah, you know, this was a great start and there were plenty of surprises, right? As I said in the mm. beginning, I was like, oh, I might have a few surprises. I think and we only one had skip. plenty of surprises yeah. and only, only one, one skip. Yeah, I mean, that means they're all coming in the second half, but it's like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, might give a spoiler spoiler of sorts to uh, what the next part looks like, but there are still a few surprises in store, whether that be games or the order of things in general. Yes. Um, but yeah, you know, again, this is, I can't stress that enough. Just, I love this time of the year again to come together and just kind of like have it. It's chaotic in putting the list together, but it is very relaxing in a way that for whatever reason, sometimes coverage of other games during the year is not. So yeah, I look forward to, you know, continuing our games of the year coverage and whatnot. Um, and as always, it's a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Yeah, until the second half of the five-hour director's yeah. cut. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, this one uh, is going to clock in at just under two and a half, and we'll see, you know, I'm sure once we get to the lower half of our lists, the passion will come through even more so. So that will be probably <laughs> yeah along the same length or perhaps <laughs> even longer. Yeah, so until next time, we shall see you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. You can follow our Twitter account for Horror Bites also at HorrorBites underscore SR. You can join our Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast, to chat with us and other horror fans about the genre we all love. And last but not least, you can email us at saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next Monday.